Podcast. I'm your host, Matt, and joining me are my newbie co-hosts... Carol. Matt. Mel. <laughs> and we're a bunch of hoople heads. Today, we are joined by a very special guest. Please welcome back to the podcast, Harold. Yay! Hello. <laughs> Yay, Harold! Hello. Enjoying the show so far? Yeah, loving your podcast. Hey, two thumbs up. <laughs> I feel like I should have a longer introduction before I introduce the guest, but... Like, I don't Why? know. Like we should. Yeah, the die. show's long enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't want to add. We need to find a way to subtract a little bit. Harold, any particular reason why you chose this episode? Not really. I was. I think I was thinking of one at the beginning, and I was thinking uh, maybe this one because I have had some uh, kidney stone issues, and I thought I could say something. But in retrospect, I really don't know anything too much about kidney stones besides the fact that they really hurt. And um, the other thing is uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's on here, and I'm a, a big fan of his podcast. But then watching it, I kind of realized I'm, I'm a big fan of his podcast, but not as much uh, of his acting. So, Oh, well, I, I could, well <laughs> sorry, Stephen, if you're listening. <laughs> I love your podcast. Uh, he was the uh, uh, uh Committeeman? Is that uh, yeah. county commissioner? County oh commissioner. Oh my god! The guy yes. in the tub. Yes. Oh my god! I didn't realize it was him. Okay. Well, this <laughs> yeah. his is a very strange part on this show. Yeah. I I enjoyed his performance. I thought uh, I thought he did a nice job myself, but uh, several people were looking forward to his appearance, having heard his podcast and knowing that he was coming up. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, the whole kidney stone thing. I unfortunately had a a. Uh, encounter with the same this week <laughs> oh no yeah. way yeah no. what timing oh no <laughs> yeah what is it so. caused by mostly dehydration or yeah apparently um i've actually i've got a whole mess of information on it that uh i was given <laughs> on tuesday about it uh let's see does it actually say what causes it i was uh. looking I, I was told by my uh, my doctor that pretty much, uh, you name it, any, any food, different types of foods uh, can cause it, but for every person it's a little different. Um, so. Oh, yeah, and there's also a few different kinds. Yeah. Uh, they uh, There are three types, uric acid stones, druvite stones, sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, from a preceding infection, and rarely cysteine stones. I don't think those are involved with the chapel at all. I was going to say, it sounds fancy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they do. It's spelled with a Y. That's why. C-Y-S-T-I-N-E. Um, and uh, different things apparently cause the different kinds. And, uh, and yeah, they have a whole list of things you're supposed to eat, but some of them you should eat with other things. And... If you eat them alone, then that's bad, and it's really complicated. I th I was thinking about making a chart. Oh. Very that's weird. Bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks like 1 in 20 people develop kidney stones at some point in their lives. Hmm. Does that mean I'm saving 19 other people from having <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Thanks. <laughs> I drink you're welcome, a you're welcome. I drink a lot of cranberry juice, so hopefully I'll be okay. Yeah, I'd, she said that at the hospital, I said, uh, drink cranberry juice. And I was like, okay. She said, but not the cocktail. And I'm thinking. No, because it's got sugar in it. Yeah, except that 
cranberry juice is always cut it's with something. It's delicious. 100% pure cranberry juice. <laughs> you can get it. You can get it, not the cocktail, but you can get it when, like, 100% juice, but it'll be mixed with apple juice and, like, other right. juices. So it's right. not as strong. But, yeah, 100% right. pure cranberry juice, it'll, yeah. like, yeah, you'll feel like your head's about to fall off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really it's sour. Yeah, it's very, very sour. So usually, you know, apple juice and cranberry juice mixed together is... But, it's good, yeah. But you're supposed to avoid sugars and all kinds of stuff. Darn. Yeah. <laughs> Today they have procedures where they use sound waves to break up kidney stones. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. That's fancy. My father had an attack of kidney stones. We were on Ellis Island, and uh, he had to excuse himself and go to the bathroom, and then he was in there for a very long time, and I finally went in to check on him, and he's, like, whimpering on the bathroom floor. That's oh, how oh. painful that it, it was. Yeah. It's not fun at all. Um, you know, you watch something like this and you're just so glad that you live in a time where there's modern medicine. Um, yeah, poor Al. Good God. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've had um, four bouts of it so far. Oh, my. And, and uh, the last time they, they had me scheduled for a surgery, uh, which would have happened on Monday, and I passed the stone, I think, on s- Sunday. So I avoided, but they were going to be, you know, going through my my genitalia and, and trying to pull it down. It wasn't, I wasn't getting any uh, sound wave uh, <laughs> for this one. It was, it was too big of big of uh, one for them to break up, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so I was not looking forward to that, and I was so glad <laughs> yeah. that made it through. Oh, oh. awful. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, nasty stuff. So do you guys think that if you can break up a kidney stone through sound waves, do you think that when Jewel was screaming that it kind of helped to break up Al's <laughs> kidney stone? <laughs> Sonic scream. Yeah. That, that's her mutant power. That's yeah. right. I like it. <laughs> oh, I feel better. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that the poking a piece of metal at them all probably helped more than that. Oh, it's so gross. Yeah. So I, I don't know if this is a time or not, but let, let me just ask the newbies what what you think of this decision for the uh, people run Deadwood to to make this the focal point of the first uh, third of the second season. I mean, they just had a, a first season. They have a breakout character with Al Swearingen, mm-hmm. and then they spend you know three or four of the you know these first episodes with him sidelined and having this. Uh, fairly unpleasant uh, scenario play out. I hate to say it, but my first thought has been, and it was as I was watching the very end, my immediate thought was, so I wonder what the actor, whose name I can't come up with, um, what Ian conflict... McShane? Huh? You mean Ian McShane? Ian McShane. Um, what conflict Ian McShane had that he needed the time off when they were filming these four episodes or whatever it was that... Uh, what what did he need to do that they needed to write him out for a while? It might not always be something like that, where where they need to get rid of an actor for a while, or or an actor needs to go. Might they might have had that plan since the beginning? I, they might I, have. They might. I'd, li- I'd like to think that it's just a way for them to focus on all of Al's friends because we're getting to know all of his all of his cronies more. You know. Well, it's in, definitely. In yeah, it definitely did give us, it, it gave us a lot of character having to do with how much people really do care about Al. 
And, and, uh, and you get these new characters who come in without Al, you know, initially coming into contact them with, mm-hmm. with them. So you have uh, Hearst Proxy comes to town, and now you have the county commissioner come to town. So a lot right. of things are swirling about uh, that Al's not involved in. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see um, what happens. I mean, they've had they've had the place to themselves for a few days without Al's boot on anybody's neck. I wonder if David Mills just wrote this storyline in as a challenge to himself. Can I write the show, make it interesting without Al? Kind of like how Joss Whedon wrote Hush because everyone said, oh, he's so good with dialogue. Well, all right, well, I'm going to write an episode where there is no dialogue. Well, there is, but... (laughs) Yeah. And can I I make a episode of television as good as uh, with this, you know, uh, self... Self-imposed restriction kind of thing. Maybe that maybe that was a, a challenge that Milch had for himself. Maybe there's nothing on any of the commentaries. I haven't heard it yet. I'll see if I can track it down. Maybe for next episode, the genesis of this storyline. But I also do like how it allows the other characters to come into focus. You really do get an idea of how much you know, what the gem means to people. Because you're right, Al just so overwhelms everybody else that up until this point, it really, it was almost stereotypical. I mean, you had the big boss, he was in charge of everything, everybody cowered and did his bidding and, and all of that. And you take him out of the the uh, equation, and instead of all the people being like, aha, good the big boss is off my back they're all you know scared and and ready to to burn the place down if he if he dies well let's play the readers theater for today ooh conclusion to uh the previous episode all for love and this is read by Paul Mackey a fidget cast all for love part the second Black Hills Daily Times, December 7th, 1877. Our reporter again visited the scene of the tragedy this morning. The bodies were dressed and lying side by side in the room of death. Suspended upon the wall, a pretty picture of Kitty, taken when in the bloom and vigor of youth, gazed down upon the tenements of clay as if to enable the visitor to contrast a happy past with a most wretched present. The pool of blood rested upon the floor. Blood stains were upon the door and walls. The upturned faces, patients sovereign or transmuted ill, were calm and expressionless. An opera chain cut in two places, Kitty's perforated body, a shattered window pane, and a deep indentation in the building on the opposite side of the street attested the terrible force of the bullet that took the widow's life. Another bullet, battered into a shapeless mass with a piece of skull entwisted in the lead, fell from Curly's hat as it was picked from the floor and told the cause of that unfortunate death. By the side of the corpse stood a female friend, Officer Seavers, and a few curious ones. The cause of the tragedy may be summoned up in a few words. I, in one, jealousy. Several years ago, Kitty, who was as a jig dancer, had acquired considerable repute and favoritism, went to Texas under a theatrical engagement, and there became acquainted with a person whose name we withhold, and with whom she lived for six years when the two of them went to California. Several months ago, they came to Deadwood, where they became estranged, and subsequently Kitty married Samuel R. Curley, a well-known faro dealer, but between whom there was no congeniality. 
Soon thereafter, Curly went to Denver, and almost immediately thereafter, the broken friendship between Kitty and the unmentioned party was restored, a fact that was communicated to Curly, who undoubtedly came to Deadwood for the express purpose of killing his wife, her paramour, and himself. For he traveled under an assumed name, alighted from the coach in South Deadwood, telling the driver, if asked, if any of the passengers other than those delivered at the office had come up, to say no. He walked direct to the Lone Star, remained there all of yesterday, and in the evening sent for his rival, who refused to visit him. He then told the colored man employed in the house that he intended to kill his wife and himself, and true to his word, went upstairs and did so. The deceased woman was twenty-eight years of age and was legally the wife of Captain E. H. Lewis of Bay City, Michigan. By this union, a boy was born. In 1872, she, with the child, left her husband and has been before the public as a dancer visiting various parts of the country ever since. The child is now at Los Angeles, California. Curly was about thirty-five years of age and well-known through the West and had the reputation of a peaceful individual. Mm. It was a crime passion. It just reminds me of all those old time radio shows I listened to. And like, I listened to so many like radio shows from like the forties and fifties and pretty much 80% of them, I'd say have spouses trying to kill each other. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's up with like so much spousal murder back then. It still happens today all the time. Yeah, yeah, I guess. All, all the time. But I mean, it was such a. It's pretty common, just, at least at least around by me. Is we there's stories like that in the newspapers, uh, you know. Quite well, I, know often. I mean, as a storytelling device, it was or like it was the only story that people were telling back then. Like I think we've branched out now. You don't see it as much in our fiction. Didn't it just happen in in Michigan? This last. Oh, I'm week? sure it happened. You know, just right now, but <laughs> like. Yeah. Wasn't there a story today in Minneapolis where a father uh, killed his whole family? Yeah, I think yeah. that I th- maybe it was Minneapolis. I thought it was. Yeah. Th- well, okay, then there was one like a few days ago too. Yeah, there was one where a father stabbed all of his kids in the car. I can hear. Uh, people are alike all over. Yeah, people. Are, yeah, people are crazy. Just no two ways about it, and they have been for a very, very long time. This article was very eloquently written, particularly at the beginning and the descriptions of the gore. They were very into descriptions of gore. I mean, this was also a time when they did things like, and they did for quite a while afterwards, like have an exhibit go around of you know body parts from some famous, uh, like Billy the Kid or somebody, you know, famous criminal who was shot and there would be like an exhibit in Denver of, you know, memorabilia, including body parts of the guy or something. During the season breaks, when the show was on hiatus, those of us who were watching Deadwood at the time would look up articles like this one and say, oh, that would be an interesting storyline. I wonder, maybe they'll, maybe they'll integrate that into the plot somehow and we'll have, uh, we'll meet, you know, uh, Kitty Leroy and Samuel L. Curley, maybe they'll be that big murderer at some point. And we, then we watch the casting news and see if that was they were going to go that direction. And then maybe a character would come in and, oh, well, she doesn't say that she's Kitty Leroy, but she's a dancer. So maybe it'll be this, maybe this is the character and it'll happen to. The speculation was a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds like it. 
this is episode 16, Requiem for a Gleet, written by Ted Mann, directed by Alan Taylor, original air date March 27th, 2005. Alan Taylor recently directed Terminator Genesis. Oh. Which I did not see. How was it? Uh, it was all right. Yeah, all right. Th- third best. He's a Game of Thrones director, too, Alan Taylor. And The Sopranos, and I think Mad Men, too. A lot of uh, quality TV. Yeah, a lot of prestige dramas. It's morning. Seth apologizes to Martha. The previous evening, he had hoped to stay awake so they might chat in the stillness of the evening, but he had fallen asleep. Tonight, he will have two cups of coffee. (laughs) So, by chat, is it quote-unquote chat? Yes, it's quote-unquote chat. They're going to have a intercourse, by by which they mean intercourse. I thought they were actually going to (laughs) talk. I actually thought when... He started the discussion. He was talking about actual talking. And then no, this, yeah. the discussion it changed. Yeah, that, that, that was the uh, verbiage of the time. In fact, there was a, uh, a, a tort of, uh, oh, what's, what's the uh, phrase? Um, can't think of the phrase. There, there's a, a legal cause of action that was popular at the time. It was something like uh, unlawful conversation. Uh, I'm getting. I'm, I know the word conversation was was, was involved. Um, you know, meaning that someone had intercourse with someone who they were not married to, adultery. And, and I was wrong in feedback. I thought that they had already had had their conversation on, <laughs> in the previous episode. Didn't they just go upstairs together? But I, I thought when they uh, took off the the bundling board that that was an indication that they were going up to have a conversation. Yeah, but now he's saying that he fell asleep. Yeah, <laughs> you just say sex. <laughs> nice, nicely done, Seth. So I wonder what would happen. I mean, if someone really did want to just have a discussion, <laughs> can we can we have a conversation? Hey, why are you groping me? <laughs> you just said you wanted to talk. Yeah, talk. I I thought talk was slang for sex. Yes, I just wanted this scene to end. Why? It was so awkward. I hated it. I was like, just get it over with, God. <laughs> Okay, I've looked it up. So there is a uh, tort called criminal conversation, which it says a a few states still permit a lawsuit for damages uh, by the injured spouse against the wrongdoer. Uh, Many states have abolished this. So criminal conversation is not the same as alienation of affections, which does not necessarily involve the commission of adultery. So it's still used as a legal term of art. Well, is the wrongdoer Seth or Alma in this situation? Well, in this case, there's, it's going to be criminal conversation. Uh, but if were Seth, say, to, to head on over and... Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, if you went over now with Alma, uh, that would be criminal conversation. But who would be, uh, the, who would be the person that Martha would sue then? Martha could sue Alma. So you can sue someone for having a conversation? That's ridiculous. <laughs> a criminal one. <laughs> a criminal one. So is it that... Be, like, so does a criminal conversation count as like having, talking while having sex? Yeah, no, was- that that would just be uh, rude. <laughs> well, Martha suggests that they have that intercourse now, if Seth will see to the door, and he walks over and he closes the door, and I'm assuming they shag. Well, I'm assuming they don't, because they seem so frustrated after the kid leaves. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Uh, well, they seem like, she's like, god damn it, she seems so angry. Why do they feel the need to do this? The need to have sex? Yeah. Because they're married now? Yeah, but... Nobody has to know. Like nobody knows what they do. Like people probably assume they do it. They don't have to. It's just because she she probably wants the marriage to be consummated so that 
They can he just tell annul. people. She yeah, wants she wants to keep a hold of Seth. I mean, isn't yeah, that what you're yeah. saying, Mel? It's security, yeah. 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 She, she, he's taking care of her. If they don't have sex, he could decide that he wants to annul that marriage. Yeah, but does and that seem like say, something he would do? N- no, but she doesn't know that. Well, also, I mean, emotionally, to keep him attached, that is, that's something, you know, that, that binds him to her mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, just laying next to each other in bed for the rest of however long will not. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be married, too. Like, it's kind of like, well, are you going to do this or no? Like, yeah. It, but I know there's several couples that are probably just platonic and they don't do that stuff, which... You know, fine, but some people need that stuff again. <laughs> in the episode where she removed the bundling board, I said that she removed it to make things less awkward, and you were, you two were like, uh, no, I think it'd make it more awkward. But what I meant was that it was a step that she was taking so that, you know, over the course of their marriage, it's like ripping off a Band-Aid. Like, I'll remove the bundling board, we'll have sex, it'll be super, super awkward for this first week or two, but then after that, we'll have laid the groundwork and things will be better. Yeah. Well, she's- a message with removing the bundling board. She was saying, you know, that sex was definitely on the table or, you know, in the bed, whatever. <laughs> and now they, yeah, and and now they've had this had sex. So now it's, I think overall it's going to make things easier down the road. If they just slept next to each other with a board between them, every day for for years will be terrible because this this is the precedent they will have set. Yeah, she wants to create a real marriage. Yeah. You know? she, she's taking the steps to do that, which otherwise I don't know that he would. He would. He yeah. might just, uh, <laughs> you know, go to bed every night and get up early and and uh, he, yeah, go out and sheriff. Yeah, he wouldn't take those steps for a few reasons. I mean, um, it's his brother's wife, which is weird enough, you know. And I think it makes sense that you know he would be looking for a signal from the woman involved that she was interested in in taking that step, you know? Well, I, I think Seth falls asleep after sex because it's about halfway through the episode before he finally comes downstairs for breakfast. So I want to say he passed out. <laughs> he went out to the fetal position and cried. I think he cried. I, I don't know. I still don't think they had sex just because of the way she reacted. I'm not sure why she was so angry, but... I I don't know that she was angry. I mean, well, they, were, they were just uncomfortable. I think. Yeah, I I wasn't sure. I was having a hard time reading her when he came down those steps and he entered the kitchen. He had a little smile on his face. I mean, he he definitely looked like you know he. Well, well, maybe he was happy that they didn't do it. No, he had that look of you know. Hehehe. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Satisfaction. Yeah, it's it's yeah. obviously a different relationship than he has with Alma, but and so it's a little awkward at this point. But I I, I think they they definitely had that conversation. Uh, they're they're just a little they're feeling each other out a little bit. Yeah, I just really hate that household right now. <laughs> I mean, Plus it, pr- it probably takes him a real long time to get dressed with all those layers of clothing that he wears. That's, that's <laughs> true. I maintain that he fell asleep. <laughs> uh, I don't know. At the gym. Al is shaking in his bed. Dolly wonders to Trixie if she may have killed him by sticking her thumb up his ass. Trixie <laughs> says, no, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Dolly is not the brightest bulb. No. Oh, Dolly. She's dumb, but... <laughs> Seems like a sweet girl, though. Yeah. 
Things are loud and busy at Alma's mill. Ellsworth spies Mr. Francis Wolcott and recognizes him from the Comstock, where he was beardless and operating as a geologist for George Hurst. Wolcott recalls an Ellsworth who saved three souls from a cave-in and 46 corpses, but Ellsworth doesn't give a fuck what he recalls. Get off this property, you cocksucker. Don't they have any security at this gold mine? It's called Ellsworth. Yeah. It's a gold mine. How is it that people can just wander around and, on, on that type of property? Well, that's why Ellsworth is kicking him off. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you could fence that in either. Yeah. It's, it's a large... Yeah, it's a very large property. I'm... Yeah. I would think you would have a lot of security, and anyone who comes in or out is going to be searched. See if they're, they're hiding some gold I don't, anywhere I don't in their clothes. That, I don't know if they were that organized. You have to remind me again what the Comstock is. The Comstock is a silver load that's underneath Nevada. It's where George Hurst made all of his money. Okay. It's a very, very famous uh, silver mine. Not famous enough. We don't know anything about it. <laughs> Get more famous silver mine. Ellsworth apparently saved three people from a cave-in, and uh, he warned Hearst and company, and and Wolcott too. Apparently, don't dig here. Pull these guys out of this mine shaft. It's unstable, and they, I guess, blinded by greed, sent these guys in, and forty-six of them died. And that's why Ellsworth said, "You're bloodied from the Comstock because you, you these men's lives are on your hands." Yeah, we had a lot of people responsible for deaths in this one. Garrett Dillahunt said, I was despondent by the middle of the first season because I, in, I had been enjoying this very collaborative, creative process with David Milch, and I knew that McCall was on his way out. David noticed that I was feeling down, and he hauled me off to the gem. He said, I'm toying with the idea of bringing you back as someone else. I want you to play George Hurst. So I went off researching Hurst for about seven months. Then David told me, I'm sorry, we have someone else to do Hurst. But then he told me about Francis Wolcott, who was Hurst's emissary, his blade. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I thought it was interesting that Elcott, uh, uh, not Elcott, I just combined the two names, Ellsworth <laughs> and Wolcott. That's their shipper name? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. No, no, please. Uh, I thought it was really interesting when they, uh, that Ellsworth knew Wolcott. Ellsworth has been around for a while. It's, this is not, you know, I mean, we kind of got that idea, like he knew what he was doing and stuff, but apparently he's been at strikes. He's a he's a gold miner, you know? He's not just one of these people who heard there was gold in, in uh, the Black Hills and went running. He This is something he's been doing for a long time at different gold and silver strikes around the West, apparently. Yeah, he's a professional prospector. Exactly. And it's probably a small community of uh, people like that who travel around from place to place wherever they hear there's a uh, possible uh, strike somewhere. Uh-huh. He's he's not new to the game. He he knows what's going on. He's a smart cookie. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but you know the that whole conversation he has with Alma. It's like, "Okay." Yeah, he's he's not a hooplehead. No, he he knows what's what. When he was introduced, though, he was very dirty and very kind of, oh, I just gold, I just pan for gold enough to get money for drink. And that's about it. That's all I need. Right. You know, although he did operate a sluice, not he wasn't just panning for gold. So, but he was kind of set up as somebody who wasn't as professional as this Ellsworth, who was very on the ball about things. Well, 
I don't know if it it was so much that he wasn't professional. He was he, as you say, he didn't have like ambition or direction or whatever, and that might be the difference in the character that you know he was he was had been through like we now find out that he watched forty six people forty six people die and uh so maybe it was just one of those things of washing his hands of the whole thing and going and just i'm just gonna pull enough gold out to get what what i need i'm gonna live day to day and to hell with the world mm-hmm. well, well the difference between him and season one is that in season one he was like you said he was just hoping to get enough to go to the gym and have you know make it through the night but in season two he's been elevated to a position of, of responsibility and he's up to the challenge Right, you know, he, he he has the type of skill to to work for Alma and to run this mine, and so now he's being challenged. Right, and he's in love with uh, Miss Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. A woman like that puts her trust in you. You definitely want to prove her that prove her right that she put that the trust was well placed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He's he's taken on. You know, he's been given direction and he's been given, you know, a, a meaning, and he's in charge. So. You know, if if the reason he had kind of washed his hands of the whole deal before was because he had had to watch people who were in charge do greedy, stupid things and get people killed, being in charge, you know, might seem like a real good way to not have that happen and to run it, do it right, and run things right. I just have this feeling that the Comstock backstory was not in Ellsworth's original character and that they added it you know, around this point. Just a feeling I can't say for yeah. certain or not. That could very well have been. Sophia is practicing her reading when there's a knock at the door. Oh. Alma produces some rock candy from somewhere. I don't know where she was <laughs> hiding it, but under her, skirts. It, under her skirts she uses it to distract <laughs> Sophia. Miss Isringhausen is at the door. Alma is still of a mind to dispense with her services, but she'll pay the tutor six months' severance, cover the expenses of her return to Chicago, and pay for her room at the hotel until arrangements can be made. Then Alma adds, Don't be so hard on yourself. And don't you want to say goodbye to Sophia? No? Okay? All right, then. I thought maybe she had cooled down, but nope. <laughs> well, so you're I still think she, fired. I think she did cool down, but, you know, she... I mean, she presents basically is saying that that she's very judgmental and of both herself and Sophia and that kind of person can wear on you she just needs that kind of shit in her life it just seems a little weird to me that she's so uh I don't know she takes such such great offense to Ms. Isringhausen for this mm-hmm. I would think that she'd be used to people like that right and that's why she probably doesn't want to deal with one yeah, her. I think she's just trying to get rid of that negative uh, influence in her life. She's trying to better her life right now. She, you know, her dad's not around to control her. She's becoming her own woman, and she's like, I don't need anybody to bring me down right now. And, of course, it turns out that, uh, you know, her instincts are probably pretty good about this woman. <laughs> and she's getting Sophia uh, addicted to candy, like <laughs> Brom got her addicted to laudanum. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. She's creating a uh, a, a mini a, Elma. Agency. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was some fancy rock candy too. Green. I'm surprised oh. it didn't melt in her skirts. Uh, yeah. 
I've always wanted to try rock candy. What you got in there? <laughs> you never tried rock candy? No. I've had a couple opportunities, but I never never it's, bought it. It's sugar. just sugar. Yeah, yeah, it's just colored sugar on a stick. I don't think you would like it, Matt. No? You don't like sweet stuff that much. I guess. We used to we used to buy it just in big chunks. Yeah, the green instead of... We used to get just, like, white. Yeah. yeah. I've seen pink ones, but never green. Yeah. I thought that oh, was it. Oh, it like apple or something. Oh, do they flavor it? No. They can. They probably can. I mean, sure, sure. Probably they not could. back then. But, I mean, rock candy was tasted good all by its lonesome when I was a kid, so. <laughs> yeah, any sugar is good when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She compares Miss Isringhausen to Cotton Mather. Born in 1663, Mather was a New, York, New England Puritan minister. He preached his first sermon at age 17, was ordained at age 22. He believed in witchcraft, but he was not involved in the infamous Salem witch trials, except that he wrote a letter warning against specter evidence, which is testimony from a victim of witchcraft saying that he or she had been attacked by a specter bearing the appearance of someone the victim knew. Cotton Mather, like his father before him, reasoned that since witches could take any form, they could easily take the form of an innocent person. Therefore, you can't trust the victim's word that so-and-so is a witch. Mm. Just, I mean, it makes complete sense. There's a, by the way, there's a fascinating article on this. Uh, just so happens in last week's issue of The New Yorker uh, about Cotton Mather and, and the, the witch trials. Yeah. And it's, it's just amazing. Uh, reading those stories, I was just reading on a plane last week uh, about... Uh, you know how they could be hol- so holier than thou that they even accused a rival preacher of being a witch, mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and and he ended up uh, being someone who was hung uh, that preacher. Uh, so oh. so it, yeah, it, it was unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable how many people uh, were just uh, were, were hung or yeah, just railroaded be- for yeah. some, some ridiculous mm-hmm. reason. Have has anyone seen the Crucible or read the play or? Saw it performed? Yeah. Right, a long, long time ago. Absolutely. Good way to get rid of your enemies, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No witch! movie, just the play. Oh, the movie's very good. Joan Allen and Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder. Really? Yeah. I heard very bad things about it. Oh, I've seen it tons of times. It used to air on HBO, like, a lot. (laughs) I would watch it. I've seen it many times. Oh, I want to say it was probably made... Back in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Cotton Mather's father's name was Increase Mather. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very uh, unusual first name. Okay, I, fa- I found the New Yorker story I'll post into the Facebook group. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. I'll en- I will enjoy reading that. Um, yeah. The original play of The Crucible is wonderful, by the way. If anybody gets a chance to see it. Despite his belief in the supernatural, he was a leader in the fight for inoculation against smallpox, incurring popular disapproval. When Cotton inoculated his own son, who almost died from smallpox, the whole community was wrathful, and a bomb was thrown through his chamber window. Whoa. Talk about anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Yeah, So he was pro-vaccination. I read that he he had a belief that illness could could reside within people's minds, like mental illness. Wow. I don't know how you can reconcile that with your belief in witchcraft though. Yeah. Like seriously. if someone, someone's insane, clinically insane and saying that person's a witch, how can you say, well, it could be witchcraft or it could be insanity. Mm-hmm. Oh. I would think that you can separate, you know, that there's magic in the world and there's illness in the world. 
and the two are not necessarily connected. How would how would you ever f- how would you figure that out? We probably spent his life trying to do just that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I'm sure he had various ways that we would now consider really bizarre. Because some of the ways that they would try and prove that someone was a witch and stuff just make no sense to us whatsoever now. But right. Well, some of it, some of it was people trying to get revenge on someone else. So they would say, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Matt uh, well, I, bewitched me. And oh, him, the other one. Say, okay. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pick, pick a mat, and, and then they would at, at the trial. They would say, "If Matt looks at me, uh, I'll, you know, he'll he'll make me lose control of my body." And then they would have have Matt look at me, and then I would shake on the ground and twitch. And uh, good enough, take him and, away. Oh, he's a witch. Yeah. and of course it was mostly it was mostly women that were being targeted. Um, a lot of midwives and you know other such people were horribly horrible things were done to them and of course there was that wonderful thing of you know let's throw her in the lake and if she floats she's a witch and if she doesn't well she's drowned but she'll go to heaven it also seems like a lot of it was about young women who uh would not be timid and would you know would actually you know speak their mind about things and that would be a sign of witchery right and then later on it was a sign of insanity Plus, people wouldn't lie. They just wouldn't because this is what Cotton Mather said uh, about children who lie. They which lie must go to their father, the devil, into everlasting burning. They which never pray, God will pour out his wrath upon them. And when they bed and pray in hellfire, God will not forgive them. But there they must lie forever. Are you willing to go to hell and burn with the devil and his angels? Yep. So if hell is a very real place and you go there if you lie, then no one would lie about being bewitched. No. Right? No. It's, that isn't that is an airtight case. Mm-hmm. Yep. Dan's shoulder is still messed up from his confrontation with the door last episode because he's he's rubbing it while he's or his hands shaking while he's pouring E B a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. Seems to be getting better though. <laughs> a little bit. Well, it's been a day. Yeah, but he couldn't even move it. He had to like flop it onto the table yesterday. <laughs> e B inquires after Al. Dan says he's quiet because he's on the mend, and I'll take no tongue with me or I'll slap you silly. I want him to slap E.B. so bad. <laughs> Why didn't he do it? I don't know. Alma wants him to slap him really hard, too. Oh, everybody. Oh, There's I a very they- long line of people who want to slap E.B. <laughs> oh, my God. Can, can they set up like one of those carnival things where he like, <laughs> like sits on the chair and there's a pool below him and people throw throw stuff at him and then Cans he might of peaches. Fall- yeah, cans of peaches. Yeah, he just. I have a feeling that they'd want to throw it at him rather than at, at a dunk at a target. I know. Maybe just throw like cream pies at him. <laughs> <laughs> Since uh, Dan identified this as a cup of coffee, we can't count this toward our drinks poured count. No, we were only counting alcohol. Oh, what if it had like uh, something like uh, Kahlua in it? <laughs> yeah, like maybe. <laughs> You never know. EB, would you like some cream liqueur in your coffee? (laughs) (laughs) I sure would, Dan. (laughs) Count it. In walks Eamon, a.k.a. Crop Ear. Oh, he's such a gaping hole in his head. Crop Ear has an idea for a score, and he's come to the gem for some reliable men. If Al consents, he'll get a a quarter share of the take. Johnny lies and says Al is overnight in Gayville. You'll have your answer tomorrow afternoon, Crop Ear. So is Crop Ear an actual 
person from the West? I couldn't. All I could find was uh, cropping animals, cropping t- dog ears. Certainly, it's a memorable look for a, a minor character. Yeah. Do you guys know who that guy reminds me of? Not his ears. No, it's just his whole face. He's like a male version of Pensatucky from Orange is the New Black. <laughs> With a meth that? mouth? Yes. Yeah, I, I was kind of thinking that. that you know, doing the the bit with uh, taking off his ears, it kind of takes a, an actor who otherwise kind of looks like a pretty boy and and gives him a tough look. Yeah, like I don't know how he he lives with those gaping holes in his head. <laughs> <laughs> like it looks way bigger than the normal ear canal opening. Well, that's the thing. The makeup on the at in the first scene, the makeup was not bad. It was kind of interesting looking, but that uh, the. The one where they're, he comes back later and they're going up the stairs. That mm. was the worst makeup job. I didn't, I didn't even look that closely it at it because it grossed, it grossed me right out. It changes so. the shape of the back of his head. <laughs> yeah. well, he had a great, it was almost like a cone because they had covered up his real ears. Yeah. They had like this, you know, this hole in his head was sticking out. Like it looked like two inches away from his, his face, you know, so it was like, okay. The guy not only has holes in where his ears should be, they also are sticking out a couple inches from his head, you know, so. The actor who played crop ear is Jeff Cahill. He died at age 44 in 2013, cirrhosis of the liver. Oh, no. Isn't cirrhosis of the liver like a good... From drinking? Yeah, don't you get that from alcoholism usually? Usually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's other reasons, but... Mm. That's the one that usually does it. But that's mm. really young to have cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah. Mm. Climbing off the stagecoach is Stephen Tobolowski. Finally. <laughs> he is a Lawrence County Commissioner. Hugo Jari is his name, and he asks E.B. to direct him toward the Bella Union. Along the way, he stopped by Silas, who sat outside of Hugo's office for half a fucking day. Well, Hugo says, when Magistrate Claggett disappeared, those of us in Yankton thought maybe you had chosen other companions. May I pass, please? <laughs> also newly arrived in Deadwood, a woman in a purple dress. When Woolcott approaches her, she says, Don't talk to me until I've had a bath. Then she is escorted by Hooplehead to the Chezami. Woolcott has a conversation with a Chinese man, who we later learn is called Mr. Lee. This concerns our Mr. Wu. Mm. So we have three new people coming oh. to camp. Yeah, I have uh, new characters coming in on the stagecoach. I notice there's like a billion extras. Like a lot, must there have cost are. fortune to like you know outfit them all and pay them all. Mm-hmm. One of the major costs of the show, I suppose, mm. just having to fill the frame with all these people and the livestock. Yeah, yeah, all the horses and cattle just roaming the streets. And then you've also got to dress them all, mm-hmm. and it's actually it's a really good gig for a an extra if you can get on one of these things where they have to fit you for a costume and stuff because they'll use you again and again because they've already got you fitted for the costume. Back in the day when I used to do extra work, um, the you know, you'd go on and the old timers would say to you basically, try and keep your face off camera because if you keep your face off camera, they'll call you back to be used another day. If you get, if you're on camera, then you know, you can't be seen too many times in too many crowds, depending on... But in this case, since it's a small town, you know, you could be... They would call the same people back so that you have these same extras, because they're townspeople. Right. Yeah. And if 
Mm-hmm. And if you can get fitted for a costume, then, you know, you're in. It's- but wasn't the show shot out on location somewhere? Melody Ranch in California. How, how far is that from L.A.? I'm just wondering whether or not there's a situation where you have uh, you know, day actors who are just in town or, or if this is something where the whole cast is basically camped out somewhere out on the ranch for weeks on end. I know a lot of times um, with extras and stuff, you know, they'll have you meet in a place like in around here, since I'm in New Jersey, New York, they would have you meet in a specific spot in New York City and put you on a bus and then take you to wherever they were shooting. If it's out on in Long Island at the uh, the hockey arena out on Long Island, then, you know, they'd bus you out there and then they'd bus you back at the end of the day or bus you up into Harlem to some old hospital or something like that then bus you back down town. So Melody Ranch is 30 miles north of Hollywood. Oh, okay. And uh, it's a complete, authentic Western town with interiors, Pueblo Village, and more. Production facilities available. They also filmed Django Unchained there. Oh, nice. So most of the exteriors are still there. Uh It's just the interior sets that would need to be rebuilt if they were to finally do a Deadwood movie. Oh, by the way, what I just said, that's, that's the way they used to do it. I don't know what they're doing now, but that's the way they used to do it some time ago. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're still doing it that way. Load up a bunch of extras in L.A. and bringing them up there for the day and then bring them back. Mm-hmm. Mm. Also, there's a chance that David Milch is going to look at the dailies and say, oh, I like that extra's look. Let's make him the titty licker. Let's make him Richardson. Yeah. They were extras before they became a minor, minor characters on the show. Right. right. wonder how you stand out. I wonder how you stand out in his mind. And that's also common in like a movie thing. I mean, you, you have a bunch of extras and stuff and you want, you know, some little thing and someone will come around and just be looking around and kind of say, Hey, you come here, come, you know, do this. And, uh, just because you have the right look for whatever it is that they're. Are you an actor? Uh, hide behind Laura Palmer's bed there. (laughs) That, That kind of thing. I'd like to go there at some point. It says that the ranch is open to the public during the Cowboy Poetry and Music Festival held at the end of April. <laughs> that would be really fun to, to be able to walk around yeah. that town I, and be like, wow, this this is like Deadwood. <laughs> you could walk around and, and possibly have a cowboy read poetry to you mm-hmm. randomly. <laughs> okay, so, well, I have a question. So, um, like, did they have a big announcement when the stagecoach was coming in? Because it, it seemed like... Wolcott was just waiting for that uh, the new prostitute to come to town. And I'm just wondering if he was, as soon as he got booed off of the uh, gold mine, if he was just waiting all day for her to see if she would show up today. Mm. Hmm. I'd be surprised if, I mean, they did run on a schedule. Um, it seemed like he was stalking her. You know, I, I assume this is the, uh, the prostitute that he's been waiting for. Yeah, that's what I have in my notes. Is this who Wolcott's been waiting for? Um yeah, stagecoaches had a schedule. I don't know how close they were on it. And it was a pretty big deal when stagecoach came in town, so. At the Bella Union, Marvin is selling his claim to Cy for $600. Yep. His, his plan to sow doubt amongst the claim owners seems to be working. Oh, yeah. 
Maddie is angry with Joni. She thinks Joni went into the room with Mr. W because she wanted to get even on behalf of the little people. You don't even know the girl he wants to harm. Well, you stay the fuck out of it. And just then the girl walks in. So, is it just me? But the, this scene just isn't, wasn't really working for me. Anything with uh, Joni in this episode. Hmm. I don't really understand what, what she, what, what she's doing, what she was I, doing with Wolcott last episode. And I don't get, I, I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand this whole story. Yeah, I don't get him or his motives or yeah. anything going on around him at all. Yeah, it's confusing to me. <laughs> I have a sense of what he, you know, the, you know, he's got, he's got his own sexual issues, but I, I, I really don't understand what Joni's trying to do or what, uh, uh, you know, what's going on between her and Maddie. I've got the feeling that Joni is used to dealing with psychopaths and thinks that she, she can control she can control the situation, which she seems to be able to. I mean, she's really good at it. She's been dealing with Psy her whole life almost. And uh, I get the feeling that she is just trying to control the situation. She hopes to keep this guy from killing this girl. And the other one... Just wants to make money. Wants yeah. to make money. I think she doesn't trust Joni. I, I, maybe that's part of it for me because, for example, you know, Maddie is, is very straightforward, you know, that she wants to milk Wolcott for as much money as she can get and, you know, finance her retirement, et cetera. So she's straight, straight out, you know, says what she's thinking. And, and Joni has that line about something terrible is going to happen here. And, and both of those lines just, just do not seem like typical Deadwood type of dialogue. It's just, uh, they're, they're straight out. Uh, saying what they think or kind of underlining what's going on w without any type of subtlety. Well, I hate whenever a character in anything says something bad's going to happen or I feel like something bad's going to happen. Something's about to happen. I hate that. I hate those lines, those por portentous lines. Yeah, and that's what Joni has one of those lines. And like it yeah. does stand out as being very cliche. Well, I think – I just think that Joni – Joni knows this guy, not this particular guy, but she knows men like him. You know, she, I think she's got a lot more of a handle on him than the other one does. And Joni is trying, I mean, this is my take on it. I might be totally off the wall, but I just get the feeling Joni is trying to handle the situation, get some control over the situation. And the other one is, all she sees is the dollar signs. And she thinks that the guy is controllable and it's not a big deal. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, the girl will get it, but we'll get money and that'll be the end of that. And Joni is, I think in many ways, a lot more, um, just understands just how, how dangerous this guy is. I'm going to read the exchange between these two. Maddie says... Were you angry at him, Joni? Was that what surprised you? How angry you were that George Hurst's second man was a cruel and evil man? Did you think that maybe you'd shoot him to get us little people even? Joni says, I took that gun into the room with me to protect myself. And who asked you to go into that room with him? Nobody gets even. We get dead. And before I go, I intend a long and comfortable retirement, and that cocksucker's going to pay the freight. So Maddie thinks Joni just wants to get even. Oh, there's a, there's a guy that beats women. Joni's going to kill him. Right. And I don't think that's the case. That's not what... No, I don't think so either, but... Mm. But, yeah, her partner thinks that 
That's why I, I have in my notes that she's really, I think she's really underestimating Joni. I'm not totally sure what Joni's up to or what's motivating her, but I, th- I don't think it's simple. And to make things even more confusing, we're not there yet, but when we revisit Maddie and Joni and the horrors at night, Maddie is very impatient with this cocksucker who's going to pay the freight. It's almost like Maddie has a change of tune, uh, which I find... Uh, Maddie is a character that I'm not sure makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that I found totally, like, what? And I don't know if it's Alice Cridge and how she's playing her or how the character's written or what's going on. Um, Maddie is weird. And, uh, N- neither yeah, of that- these scenes worked for me. They were the two worst scenes in the, epi- in the episode, I thought. Yeah, I can... I can support that. Yeah, I can support that too. I, I I mean, I feel like there's stuff going on that, that we're not supposed to necessarily understand, but I agree with you. Um, I didn't really, I did not get what the change in Maddie was. I, that made very little sense to me. Um, at least at this point in the episode, we know that Wilcott has a sexual hang up and he takes it out on girls Maddie has a girl for him to abuse. She doesn't really care. She just wants the money, and Joni is afraid and trying to defuse the situation. And Joni's mad at Maddie for putting them in this predicament. How'd she get this girl here, and under what pretense? And why can't she... And was it this specific girl that he wanted? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How come they kind of acted like they didn't know each other when they met on the stagecoach or whatever? I, I don't know if she acted like that, because she said, don't look at me until I've showered. So maybe she knows him, just doesn't, uh, yeah. didn't want to talk to him yet until she'd freshened up. Yeah. I, yeah. I assume it was someone he wanted revenge on or something, and she would have known this, but she's not afraid of him, so she obviously doesn't know what's coming. No, she definitely thinks that she is in control, and but she does not, she's not, she doesn't have the people skills that Joni's got. No. Because later on, she goes, are you going to fuck me, Francis? The way that she speaks, oh, and doesn't she, does, doesn't he talk about rocks? And she's like, well, I don't talk to rocks because I'm not a crazy person. Right, it's like, exactly. Her name is Carrie. Carrie, you might want to dial it back a little bit. Yeah. 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 And, and what, what, does he have some sort of hang up about incest as well or something? Is that part of his kink? He keeps mentioning family members <laughs> for reasons I don't know. He might, or he might just be trying to get the goats of the women. Okay. Either way, I don't like his storyline much. I don't like Maddie very much. I find this whole... Whenever they come on, I just zone out. I don't like it. Mm. There's, you know, there's an awkwardness with, like, Seth and Martha and this and that, but the awkwardness with Maddie and Joni and this guy and things is, is like unnatural and it's kind of unappealing you know what i mean it's, well it's, it's not clear i mean even even with the the on the nose dialogue it's still not clear what's going on i i don't at, at this point you don't really know too much and even going ahead to that other scene but you, you don't know that much about what is up with wolcott i i certainly don't understand what joni's been trying to do in the last couple of episodes yeah. so it, it, it it's it's kind of a mess yeah I'd agree with that. EB has a soliloquy. He contemplates no disloyalty to Elsewhere Engine. He's just reevaluating his options. He knows that he's weak. 
He yearns for a stronger will. Whereas you, Richardson, know nothing of yourself, you vile fucking lump. He does act like a lump in this scene. doesn't do anything. <laughs> Richardson is my new favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> I love Richardson. He's great. And I feel like he'd be uh, a really good cook if it wasn't for EB meddling and saying, oh, just use this shitty... Just use the awful in this uh, soup. It doesn't matter. He's some sort of chef savant. <laughs> I feel like he might be, and then, but he's just like, he's just, you know, he cowers in front of EB. He's like, oh, okay, I'll do whatever you want, and then, or some, whatever. For some reason, I always picture him as Ernest P. Worrell in some sort of <laughs> costume. <laughs> some sort of disguise. One of his many disguises. Uh, yeah, that's about right. Yeah, he just sniffs the awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone's seen the Ernest movies. No. <laughs> uh, I I saw one in the theater. I don't remember what which one it was though. <laughs> Hopefully, it was Ernest. I, I saw the commercials. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, I saw the commercials. It may have been the one where he went to camp. Did he go to camp at some point? That's probably yeah. one he of the went, worst ones. He went everywhere. Yeah, yeah. He's a very well traveled man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't he start out as a TV commercial, and it was like a series of commercials, and they turned into a movie? I yep. think so. I think he might be right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I, I like how uh, E.B. and, uh, what's his face, uh, Ernest. Richardson. Um, <laughs> I like how they, like, blah, wave each other off. <laughs> Didn't that yeah, happen Richard, earlier Richard. with... Oh, did it? Yeah, it happened here. earlier with Dan and uh, e- Ear Hole Guy. Oh. oh or no, it had Dan and E.B. They oh. waved each other off. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that happened earlier, and that was delightful. I love the little hand flourish that Dan does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that was nicely done. Yes. These would all make great animated GIFs, or GIFs. Yeah. <laughs> they just say GIFs. David Milch says, When I began writing Deadwood, E.B. Farnham was a more unreflective kind of oily type. There was none of this lavish self-contradiction and doubt that lie at the heart of the character you see now. Part of Billy's process is to sort of tear himself down before he allows himself to act. I incorporate that dimension of fearful uncertainty and self-doubt into the character to make Farnham more accessible to Billy. Okay. Interesting. Silas has a message for Al, which he gives to Dan. The commissioner from Yankton has arrived. There's a beat, and Dan quietly reveals Al's condition. Stones are blocking off his piss passage. He's got piss in his lungs. (laughs) <laughs> and in this moment, their mutual concern for Al trumps their petty bickering, and Dan inquires after Silas's little buddy, and upon hearing he'll live, Dan grins. Oh, are they going to become friends? No. I hope so. It's kind of nice. Yeah. I, I really like oh, this episode. They're finally talking like people. <laughs> I-, I feel bad, though, because everyone wants to talk to Al. Everyone. And they're just driving Dan nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Dan is Dan had a bad day later at the uh, at the at the end of the episode. He's like, I've had a really bad day. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know. You kind of makes this episode kind of makes you realize how much Al does. Like, he does a lot. He's needed. Oh yeah, you know he holds it all together. Yep. I like the moment when Dan throws like the rag at Johnny, and Johnny wakes up and goes, "It's something anyway," which was <laughs> his line from the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> a fun little callback but yes piss in your lungs is that a saying or is that just something that he thought did he seriously think he he, had piss in his lungs i think he literally thinks that like he literally thought that al was drowning in his own piss yep he probably does think so (laughs) (laughs) would you rather uh have piss in your lungs or dust in your lungs 
Mm, dust. Lung butter. You prefer the lung butter? Yeah, I think I can. At least I can kind of cough it out. I feel like piss. You just you couldn't cough that out. No, I think the liquid would come out easier. You think? Dust would just get stuck to your inside. I guess. And for more about dust pneumonia, check out Carnicast. <laughs> <laughs> Alma has been waiting downstairs in the hotel, apparently hearing rumors about the legitimacy of the claims. It's made her anxious. Ellsworth tells her that panic and rumors go hand in hand when it comes to gold, and I'm late because a man named Francis Wolcott that scouts for George Hurst has been snooping around. The Hoopals think they can get ahead of the disastrous flood by selling their claims at a discount, but Ellsworth bets the levy will hold. Alma is reassured. Lucky he's there. I liked, I liked when he took his hat off. And then to reveal, like, his disheveled head of hair. I thought that was completely adorable. <laughs> Aw, he's kind of cute. <laughs> Jim Beaver is cute. Yeah. <laughs> he reminded me, actually, too, of, like, um, Jack Nance. The faces he made. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I love how eloquent Ellsworth is. Hmm. Yeah. And Elma's big smile at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's so grateful to have such a nice guy in, yeah. her, in her life. It's like yeah. she's suddenly recognizing qualities in him that she hadn't noticed before. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she's, you know, she's been reassured, and she also, you know, he's he has all the pieces together, and she's smart enough to recognize the pieces, you know, to recognize something like that, and that kind of manipulation. I mean, she was raised by a manipulative, you know, so, so that also gives if if she recognizes what the guys are doing, she can also take advantage of the same plan. So, twenty two minutes into the episode, Seth finally comes downstairs for breakfast <laughs> uh, because he fell asleep after sex. William wants to break ground on a garden and seeks permission to head to the hardware store for a shovel, hoe, and rake. What the heck is wrong with her bathrobe? What are you talking about? I think it was a dress. I don't think it was a robe. Okay, well, that's an ugly dress. Yeah, well, she wears a lot of ugly dresses. <laughs> I would think that it was a dress and an apron. I didn't really notice, though. I I couldn't even tell what that... I was like, I think she's wearing a bathrobe, but I can't tell. It was just that ugly. Mm-hmm. So is this the uh, first time that uh, Seth and Martha call each other by their first names? Yep. I think so, because I made that note. It's personal, yep. though. They have... And if you were wondering whether they did it or not, right there is your... Your proof. Mm. And I like when the little kid runs away, he grabs a handful of oatmeal. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that was the best. <laughs> Come on, oatmeal, let's go. <laughs> it's, his, it's his pet. Yeah, it's his pet. We don't need a bowl for this oatmeal. <laughs> it's my pet cooked oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> you need some new pets since they killed Jumbo. <laughs> oh, that's true. Well, it- He's going to eat the oatmeal, too, so, I mean, he's not going to have any more of that, either. Slothful oatmeal. Well, he'll grow new friends in his garden. Oh, he'll t- he'll talk to them. them. What a messed up kid! <laughs> Back at the hotel, Alma leers at E.B. She's thinking, you, you fucker. E.B. slinks on over to her. The camp is at peril! If if I had a Nubian genie, I'd have him whisk me away to Denver! <laughs> Alma says, if the camp is at peril, maybe you should sell your hotel to me. That she spits in her hand. Name your price. Unless you're lying about the camp's peril, E.B. And E.B.'s like, damn it, she's used her wiles against me. (laughs) (laughs) Foiled again. (laughs) I I have a note that, you know, like at the beginning there, 
Alma knows how to play the dumb female. She, uh-huh. you know, she was given the cues by him and she just went into her, really? I don't know what you're talking about. But then she goes in for the kill. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite scene of the episode. Yeah. yeah and, and Farnham knows he's been bested by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's perfect because she's waiting for him, and she comes downstairs, but she doesn't have to say a word. He's the one who comes to her and brings up the uh, idea of the whole camp uh, being up for grabs. She knows he's going to do that. And, and they did, did a nice job of setting up that scene in the earlier scene with Sai and that guy Marvin because they had uh, the spitting into the hands, like reminding the audience that's how they do a deal in Deadwood. So yeah. that they, 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 ah. they brought that back you know, from last season. Uh, you know, a few scenes before this, so that you're you're set up for when Alma's going to pull that stunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that scene too. Yeah, it was pretty great. Try spitting in your hand whenever you agree on something, and, and you're going to shake on it. You're, you'll get a lot of weird reactions. Uh, <laughs> I've tr- I've tried it. It doesn't it doesn't translate to twenty uh, first century. <laughs> yeah, people were still doing that when I was a kid, but uh, I haven't seen that for a long time. Or ki- I should say kids were still doing that when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Deadwood uh, 2015, they'd spit in their hands, and then they'd shake, and then they'd each grab a bottle of Purell. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Maybe they would just skip right to the Purell, each take a thing of Purell, put it in their hand, and then shake. Oh, that's a good idea. I did love Alma just leering at EB from, like, uh, on top of the staircase. Is that where she was? And then she came down the stairs. And she's just looking at him like, I, I want to destroy you, you little, <laughs> you little man. <laughs> then it was the, the sexist language that he, you know, just like so unconsciously uses was really nicely done because it was the kind of thing that, you know, you would, I mean, you see in old movies and, and all from, you know, decades after that and was just taken for granted. You know, the whole weaker sex and less intelligent and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But, but women have great greater intuition, so it's, it's done in the form of flattery. Right, right. And she's just, you know, not surprised by it at all, of course, because that is just the way things were done and phrased. And, and she just goes right along with it until she the mask comes off and she goes in. I, I, yeah, I really like it. <laughs> Uh, another result of Al being incapacitated is E.B. floundering to hatch schemes, make deals, and f- failing at it. First with Wolcott and that Hickok letter, and now with Elma and the hotel. He needs Al to steer him because he's he's terrible at it by himself. Well, he got caught by Wolcott, you know, and now he's on, he, he's reluctantly having to do the work of uh, the Hearst side because Al wasn't around. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I forgot to mention uh, Seth's eyebrow wound. It's right above his eyebrow, and it makes him look like he has double eyebrows. <laughs> okay. And it's kind of freaky. And uh, eyebrows on top of eyebrows. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. got, like, three eyebrows, and two of them if, are above one I eye. wonder if anybody's ever been born with double eyebrows. Well, maybe. Hmm. Usually, if you ever say, has anybody ever been, the answer is yes. <laughs> There's some freak somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The doc has two surgical methods. The high method involves cutting above the penis. The low method involves cutting below the balls. In other words, Johnny says the taint. 
<laughs> Thank you, Johnny, for that clarification. Doc has seen the high method performed. One in five men survived the procedure. This, this is what he recommends. Dan says, Al blinked at the high method and scowled at the low method. So, yes, we're going to go with that. And then when everyone leaves, Dan goes out on the balcony for a little bit of a cry. <laughs> that was so sad. Dan is so funny in this episode. You thought that was funny? I did. I think Dan is just hilarious. Oh, I was tearing up with him. Well, I mean, I feel bad for him, but he, the way he delivers his lines is W. Earl Brown. It, it's just, <laughs> it's very funny. His little not, shake, shaking of the head, or nodding of the head. Yet, yet, yes, yes, he said he's. that's the one he wants. <laughs> I couldn't tell if he was actually communicating or if he was just making shit up for Al. I think he was making stuff up. I mean, well, but then at the end of the episode, he knew that he didn't want surgery at all. He wanted he, he could he felt he could pass it. I, I think Al was doing something slightly with his eyes. I think Dan knows him that well. Yeah. He can read his face. All right. Mm. Yeah. I just figured it was one of those things where Dan was going with you know it's like. <laughs> Lower sounds really awful. The higher, yeah, do the higher. It's an easy decision. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> the higher one. Yeah, I'm sure Al. That's what Al wants. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think every guy in that position would go for the high method. Uh huh. I would think. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I, I didn't. I didn't both. think Dan was going outside to cry. I thought he was going out to have a moment because I thought he was kind of em- empathizing with uh, with Al and just imagining that happening to himself. He's gonna. He was gonna hurl. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I thought, I thought he, he was kind of actually had, had, sad. Yeah. I thought he was actually sad. He thought that you know he's like this. Yeah. The moment's coming, and Al might die. Yeah, that's what I it's thought. Upsetting, too. sir. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought too. Yeah. Matt, I'm gonna post in the Facebook group footage of W. Earl Brown doing motion capture for The Last <laughs> of Us. <laughs> oh, did yes. he play? Uh, the... Yeah, he played Bill. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Nice. It's funny. He's running around in his motion capture suit. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I'll put that on the in the group. Hugo tells Sai and Wolcott that legitimacy to the claims worked prior to the treaty with the Sioux will be decided on a case-by-case basis. Claims that are overturned will be made available for sale via lottery. Yeah, in other words, they're up for grabs. Pretty much. And uh, it sounds like uh, Hearst is going to get his pick of the litter. Yep. It's a whole scheme. Yep. But, but I like the way he couched it, because he, he actually, the full quote, is he starts off by saying, the presumption of legitimacy will apply, subject to qualification, <laughs> according <laughs> to mitigating facts. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of uh, legal mumbo-jumbo, but they're going to do what they can to, uh, you know, put their thumb on the scale and uh, uh, strip people of their rights. Mm-hmm. Those tricky lawyers, right, Harold? Yep, that's what we do. <laughs> have to earn a living somehow. Uh, the big boys are figuring out how to uh, how the pie will be divided. We get our first drink of the episode. I'm fairly certain. I, I fast forwarded through the through the entire thing looking for people drinking, and there weren't too many. And I may have missed something, but I'm fairly certain this is our first one. And it's Hugo. He takes a sip of wine. Oh, that's lame. <laughs> Why is you, that sound, lame? you sound like you think that's lame. Oh, I, wine, blah. Why no, I love wine. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> but why did it take thirty minutes for someone to uh, take a drink? Oh, okay, that's why you're disappointed. This is an get- unusual episode because so much of it takes place in the morning. Yes, that's true. This was probably a bad one to do this particular count. 
Well, I thought people drank all all day long in Deadwood. Maybe maybe if Al was up and about, they would. Yeah, I think they're too distracted right now. Yeah, I was going to say, they're kind of busy. And there weren't too many nighttime scenes in this episode. It it was almost over before the sun went down. Yeah. That's where normally we have, you know, the heavy drinking. Mm -hmm. Is this the scene where Sai says the, quote, putting putting some stink on your Johnson? Yep. Yeah. (sighs) What? He says the grossest things. (laughs) I swear. It's disgusting. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. What a charmer. Yeah, I know, yeah. If only he was run for president this time. <laughs> he could be right at the top of the polls, a guy like him. <laughs> That's true. Oh, yeah. At the hardware store, Saul is behind the counter taking inventory. Trixie is too upset about Al for another lesson on counting numbers. She hurries off as Seth walks in. Saul has communication from Denver about their proposal to create a bank in Deadwood. They have to find some capital, though Denver suggests they borrow against Alma's interest. Seth says we're not doing that. This is a confusing scene. So Saul is uh, is teaching Trixie. They so- sorted that whole thing out. I'm glad I knew those kids would work it out. I, I still don't understand, though. Why Why is Trixie interested in becoming a bookkeeper? Better than being on your back fucked by hoopleheads. Who's hiring her to be a bookkeeper? I, I think she's got ambitions. Um, either to... You know, have her own place someday, whether a bar or a whorehouse or whatever. I'm not so sure about that she's looking to get hired by somebody. It, it just seems odd to me. They, they, they never did a, a setup scene where she was watching somebody doing the books. And she said, boy, that, that looks like a great occupation. Or I, I should really learn how to do that. There, there, was, there was no scene like that that I can recall where mm-hmm. you can see the light flicker in her that, that this was something to learn. So just strange to me. It's it, you're right. You're right. Normally there would be a setup, but in a weird sort of way, I I almost appreciate the fact that they didn't set it up because a lot of times in real life or something, people will be they'll have it kind of worked out, and then something will just push them into doing something that they've already worked out in their head and they've already thought they should do. And I'm guessing that. Al's illness is pushing Trixie to say, okay, I need to be able to, I mean, she's already kind of in charge along with Dan and, you know, she could run the place if she knew how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think she's just, she's getting ambitious and saying, okay, you know, I can, I could run this place if I knew what what I was doing. Well, do we know who does the inventory at the gym? I I assume Al. Yeah, we've never seen anybody sit there and say, boy, we have to order another crate of whiskey or something like that. Dan ordered that piano, so yeah. maybe he does the ordering. But Al the, Al has the desk upstairs and seems to be working on paperwork and stuff like that. And she she was um, Al's confidant for apparently a long time before he threw her out. So... Which also puts her in a more vulnerable position. So she has a choice. Just continue to be in a vulnerable position or upgrade. Yeah, it, just, uh, it just seemed a little weird to me. The other thing is the um, the bank is also something that hasn't been set up before. This is the first time yeah. we're hearing about it. So last episode they were talking about running for office. And now they're, uh, now they're talking about a bank. 
Must have been during the seven months between seasons. And I guess if you're running for office, being a banker does help give you more status. They're becoming more and more pillars of the community. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And Trixie would probably take any excuse to be at the hardware store versus at the gym. And if Saul wants to teach her numbers, oh, sure, I'll. that sounds fine. So, so, so newbies, what do you think? What are the odds that they're going to be able to establish a bank without Alma being involved? Oh, good point. I mean, it does seem like their Alma will be involved, and that'll probably be how they get Alma and Seth to be in communication again. But I mean, the one thing that that strikes me, you know, just watching it again, I'm just saying this from just a re, you know watching it without thinking about the future, is that you just had a scene right before where you have uh, the uh, new you know, uh, county commissioner talking about getting rid of all the rights, maybe the people, and, and, and handing out new deeds. So potentially Alma's uh, claim is at risk by Commissioner Jerry and, and the Hearst people conspiring against her. And then you have the next scene where they're talking about setting up a bank, but they need Alma's uh, claim as some sort of collateral for that and that the people in Denver would be interested in that. And that, that would seem to be uh, a way, uh, if, if Denver becomes involved, that would be uh, an opposing force against Hearst and his people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, so I don't think it's a coincidence So you got these two scenes back-to-back. Back. Yeah, so maybe that's where it's going, where that'll be the, one of the reasons that uh, they get Alma involved. But I agree with you. It It, it seems like they're setting up Alma to be a backer in the bank or something to that effect. And or Al, because he was the other one that they mentioned, but, uh, you know, Seth didn't want Al uh, involved. Right. Wolcott's proposal, Mr. Lee will supply opium for men in the camp and Cy will receive 50% of the gaming revenue from Celestial's Alley. Cy wants a dozen Chinese prostitutes and he wants them gently used, not all fucked out. We also get a sense of bitterness on Sai's part that he's being kept out of the loop on why Mr. Lee has arrived to supplant Mr. Wu. Is there a lot of like is there a lot of uh demand for Chinese prostitutes? I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean I don't know whether this is they are appealing to the white customers or or the Chinese. Well well here yeah, here's the question that I, I put in my notes is what does Hearst get out of this deal? Because uh, you can see what uh, Lee gets out of it. You can see what Tolliver would get out of it. Because that, that puts him in the same situation Al has with Wu. But, but what does Hearst get out of it? He gets money from the drug use, the opium being sold. That, that's well, not why Hearst is in town. Is is for opium money, right? Well, no, but if there's money to be made, he's not going to leave any on the sure. table. Well, I would think that, I mean, there was a long history of getting people, getting people addicted to opium and, uh, being able to control them more easily. Uh, well, I- I'm wondering if this is a flashback to that classic first episode of Briscoe County Jr. <laughs> and, and we're going to get an influx of Chinese labor. That would be, I don't, I can't remember, but I don't think it's spoilery to say that I believe what's going on here is Hearst is planning on bringing in Chinese laborers, and therefore they're going to need opium. They're going to need prostitutes. We're not going to let Chinese. We're not going to let Chinese men sleep with white women. They they need to sleep with their own kind. So we're going to bring in the Chinese prostitutes. They're going to have the opium. 
that's what all this is about. And it's all sort of being set up for when Hearst comes to town and starts mining there. This is my feeling. And then they find the orb. <laughs> <laughs> and then yes. things go crazy. <laughs> yes. I hope John Bly shows up. Yeah. Crossover. Yes. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And then we meet John Bly's sister, Maddie. You can, they look so much alike with their plastic mannequin faces. <laughs> <laughs> they really do. <laughs> so during this scene, there's a phrase that's used called lamp the take. I had never heard this before, so I looked it up. Doesn't seem to be an actual phrase, but one invented for the series. Huh. Uh, I found a website where they were discussing this scene. A person said, on the French DVDs, the subtitles say, well, the t- subtitles translate to, my men will collect the winnings. I'm not going to read the actual French subtitles. I would mispronounce it. Someone else chimes in saying, on the Portuguese Blu-ray, the subtitles translate to, my men will receive the profits. What I'm thinking is that lamp means illuminate. In this context, it basically means, Sai, your your people will supervise the collection of the money and collect the money. Yeah. Kind of like how Silas is the bag man for Yankton. Leon and Con Stapleton can be the bagmen on Sai's behalf to collect the money from all this Chinese goings-on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan tells Trixie that he was like a creature in the woods, just like Cropier, until Al raised him up. What? Trixie's not hearing confessions this afternoon. <laughs> but she does ask him for help uh, burning the camp down before letting Tolliver take over. You know, if it comes to that. Dan tells Jewel to clean up room three. Dolly said she bled. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. And Trixie takes a drink of whiskey here. That brings our drink total to two. Any thoughts about Trixie and Dan in this scene? I just like enjoying, or I just like uh, spending some time with them. Yes. And we, like with everybody who's not Al, even though I love Al. There's a there's a good like feeling between those two. Like you know, they're the ones in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're holding everything together. That's a good uh, analogy, because they are like the general is out of commission, and now they have to make all the decisions themselves, but they really want to protect their, the guy at the top. Yeah. They're good little good little troopers. Mm-hmm. Johnny offers to pour whiskey to steady the doc's hand. The doc rejects this, but his hand is really shaking. He drops an instrument he was in the process of sterilizing onto the floor, which Johnny stupidly picks up. There's balm in my bag. Oh, you fucking idiot. Does, and does his hand steady after he gets to help Johnny with his burn? It looked yeah, like, it like, like it. yeah, it looked like, oh, I helped somebody and now I'm confident now. <laughs> I think he just steals himself. He just finds the. But he was trying to do that before. And it wasn't Serenity good. now. Serenity yeah. now. He just needs oven mitts, I think. <laughs> Downstairs, Wu walks in demanding to see Swidgen. Dan says, Alice fucked up right now and I don't understand your gibberish. Cocksucker, cocksucker, San Francisco. All right, okay, there's an invisible cocksucker from San Francisco, and he's got your dander up. I'll go get Al. I like how he, like, he, he gradually, at first he's like, ah, I'm not going to bother trying to understand you, and then he gradually works it out. <laughs> yeah, this is a common, you know, an ESL lesson here, you know? <laughs> there's, there's plenty of ways to communicate if you just give it a try. It's the beginnings of Rosetta Stone. <laughs> I personally find this scene very amusing. Yes, probably my second favorite of the episode. It's pretty great. I I love. I, this is just more Dan freaking out. And again, <laughs> I find W. R. O. Brown in this episode hilarious. He's so manic. <laughs> I like when you know 
they say to him, you know, why don't you speak American? And who oh. just comes back at them with, you know, he's not English. Ugh. Is speak American the most ignorant oh, thing you can it's say? really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> he's the Sarah Palin of Deadwood. Yeah. Uh, yep. Miss Isringhausen knocks at Silas's door. She's been sacked by Mrs. Garrett and Scandal. Now she's drinking unchaperoned in a man's room. Silas tries to be funny by suggesting he shoot himself. Miss Isringhausen is stricken, for she fears that she might be killed. And who's threatening your life, Miss Isringhausen? Mrs. Garrett, I know it sounds impossible, but I can testify to you, Mr. Adams. I would not be the first person she's killed. What? How do they know each other? Yeah, how do they know each other? What's going on here? <laughs> I don't think they do. She just knocked at what? some... What? But he knew her name. Oh, well, they live in the hotel. I mean, they yeah. they don't they don't know each other in a in a very familiar sense, but I think they've seen each other around. I just feel like there's some weird plot going on between the two of them. Like, I feel like they're plotting evil. Well, I... They don't even know each other. I think she's... I mean, my, my note here is, first, I was like, why is... She going in, you know, knocking on Adam's door. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the very end, when she came out with that, it was like, oh, she's a plant. Okay. She's, she's probably been working with daddy all this time. Oh, you maybe. Think? Maybe she's a plant that, or is, is, is she just uh-huh. decided to get her revenge now, now that she's been fired. Oh, yeah. That's not I don't know. But the fact she came up with this whole thing of, oh, you know, killed before, which a bit suspicious that she would just happen yeah. to that by herself. Could it but be she I... works for the uh, Pinkertons? Dum, dum, dum. But why would she agree, like, okay, so, if she is agreeing to be, like, a spy, she hasn't proven anything, first of all. Like, she has no proof that Alma killed anyone. She could say whatever she wants, right? She could yes. say, Alma told but... me that she, that she killed her yep. husband. But yep. unless, yeah, but unless she dies too, you know, there's not no real proof, you know. And really? why would you willingly? Why would you willingly go into something like this to just so you can die? <laughs> Black, blackmail. Maybe she could blackmail Alma. Maybe. Or, or she's setting Alma up for her daddy to come back and and pull the number that he, you know, was doing. Or, yeah. or she's uh, working for Hearst. Maybe. You know, and I don't know. I just think she's. I think she's involved. All these rumors that are being used to build people. Mm. I I think uh, she's working for somebody or with somebody. I don't know who, but yeah. I think she's a plant. And uh, but but if she was a plant, wouldn't she be nicer, Thalma, and and try and stay in her good graces? She, maybe she's not good at her job. <laughs> she wants to bring out the worst in Alma. Maybe maybe she was trying to. Um, um, how can I put this? Like erode. Alma's confidence and such, yeah. you know, by by being that niggling, disapproving voice that you know you're not you're not good enough, you're not doing this well, you're you know, because that can that can really screw someone up. Well, now that she's sacked, she could tell people Mrs. Garrett got rid of me because she knew that I was onto her or something. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. But um, I think I would have liked to seen just like maybe in the season premiere when she was with Sophia in the in the dining room perhaps Silas could have gone by and they could have acknowledged each other in some way or yeah at some point i would have liked a little like a, a nod 
Yeah. You know, between the two that, oh, you know, hey, I've seen you around. Hey, hi, I'm going to my room. Yep, see ya, bye, whoever you are. Yeah. yeah there, there's a lot of head-scratching moments in this episode uh, as there we're going through it. Yeah. There yeah, there's a, there are a lot of just sort of, we trust that you, you can fill in the blanks that we've left for you because we we haven't set these things up. Well, I know I noticed that this episode is only about fifty minutes, where so it's a little shorter than the normal one. So you you would think they could have fit in a couple of scenes to kind of fill in some of these blanks that we're we're having. Maybe they did have scenes and they were cut for some reason. That that sometimes happens. I've had that a number of times where we were the same kind of thing, where your head scratching and you're going, "What the?" And then you find out, oh, there was a deleted scene that you know explained mm-hmm. that whole thing, but. They had time issues in that particular one or something. Yeah, because I, I also have to know, why does she go to Silas Adams' room? Because it's so unusual for yeah. someone, a woman to, to go into a man's room at, at this time. It's, it's Why would she invite scandal? It's just, yeah, just I was really just strange. I was just like, as soon as he opened the door, I was like, what? Where is this coming from? Yeah. And for me, having seen it, several times before I, it doesn't seem unusual to me. It's like, okay, this is the scene where she goes to Silas's room. But from your perspective, yes, it does feel very weird because we never got any history between these two characters. So not only do you have to listen to what she's saying, but you also have, you're also in the back of your head, probably thinking, do they have a connection? What is their relationship? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been nice if there was just a little moment where Silas said something like, Oh, I see you're you're very out of sorts today, Miss Isringhausen. If you ever need anything, yeah, uh, you know I'm always here to, yeah. you know, a shoulder to cry on or whatever. But they cl- very clearly don't know each other because of the way he acts very shy and his eyes are kind of darting all over. He doesn't look at her. He's, he then he sits down. He turns his back to her. It's like he he's very nervous about. Probably more so than she is, because uh, there's this great moment where he pours her some whiskey and he says, oh, I'm sorry for your lot in life if you've never had whiskey before. And she just picks it up and drinks it like a badass. Mm-hmm. In this situation, he he's the one who's very shy and yeah. put off. She yeah, says she's never had whiskey, but I'm pretty sure she has. No, yeah. she never said that. She says she hasn't been in a man's room right, right. without an escort. She never says that she's never had whiskey. He suggests that she's never had whiskey, and then she drinks it down. Just to prove that she has. Yeah. Well, now that, now that uh, we're talking about it, it kind of hits me that in, in this episode you have uh, Martha, Alma, and Ms. Isringhausen. Each one, they kind of put a man on the defensive by being uh, aggressive in a way that women just were not expected to be in that time and place. So, so Silas is certainly stunned that a, a woman would come into his room on you know, broad daylight like that and uh, to have a conversation. Uh, so that that's not, very unusual. Not a conversation. <laughs> not, <laughs> not let's not go there. Conversations. But you're right. That's another good comparison. There are a lot of women in this episode being underestimated by the men. Mm-hmm. That's very true. So a, a drink from Miss Isringhausen and a drink from the bottle... By Silas, that brings our total to four. It's surgery time. Dan secures Al to the bed. Trixie is going to prepare the dope, but Al wants to try passing the stones naturally one more time, so they stand him up. Johnny has the smelling salts at the ready. Al begins to piss a stream of blood that would make a horse proud. Doc inserts the lithotome and instructs Trixie to milk the prick. As the gleet discharges onto the floor, Doc thanks Al. Thank you for saving me, and they all collapse under the bed. 
Oh, that's such a great shot of. The- <laughs> I love it. It yeah, was that- so great. It was disgusting, though. I couldn't watch the the gleets falling to the floor. Yeah, I didn't actually <laughs> see any like hard thing. I just I saw, just a bunch saw of, like some white stuff. I saw milky substance. Yeah, I didn't see uh, like. Did you guys see anything hit the ground? Oh, I didn't. I didn't see anything. Okay, it looked kind of lumpy. Yeah, it looked lumpy. It was like milky and lumpy. Yeah, but gross. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was pretty cute when they all landed in bed together. <laughs> <laughs> shot of the bunch of them in bed, you yeah. know, all all around Al was. I mean, these are his people, and they love him for some <laughs> some reason. Yes. Perhaps this crisis made them fall deeper in love with him. I don't mean in romantically in love, but. I hope he treats them better from now on. Even though he didn't treat them that bad compared to other people, how other people treat their underlings. But you'd kind of hope that they he would not forget everything that they did for him. Yes. Yeah. And in this moment, they just gave all of themselves to him to save his life. It's yeah. So now he's going to be like Scrooge after Christmas morning. <laughs> Aww. Oh. Yeah, he's just going to blow jobs for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Pussy at a discount. And I'm the one goose. I'll give everyone blowjobs. (laughs) (laughs) Don't isolate that. You lick free tonight, young man. (laughs) And now it's evening and we are at the Shazami. Mr. W gives a mythology lesson to the girls, most of whom are instructed to face the wall. He lectures that thousands of years ago in Cyprus, all women spent time as prostitutes at the Temple of Aphrodite. They sacrificed their bodies to secure Bountiful harvests. Mr. W catches Doris peeking. No peeking! He slams her against the wall. Maddie wants to get on with it, and Mr. W is annoyed. There is an atmosphere of impatience where there should be a haven of indulgence. Joni says, you're behaving badly, and she removes herself to the corner. Bummer, Mr. W says, I was just about to talk to you for 20 minutes on the topic of incest. Harold, what did you think of this scene? You didn't like it. I, I didn't like it. I, I just don't understand. First of all, I don't understand why they aren't being more indulgent. I mean, the, the whole idea of the... Shazami is to cater to, to a person like Wolcott who has a gigantic bankroll and they're going to have this higher class of clientele. They're going to make the big money doing whatever he wants. So why, why can't they indulge him? Uh, yeah. and, and, and I don't get the sense of having women standing around the room with their backs to him as being the, the most horrible thing that could ever happen. So I'm not getting the sense of, of, of what he's doing to annoy them. I'm not getting the sense of why they're not indulging him i'm just not i'm not getting it yeah i agree yeah i don't get it either i thought there the the level of anger and stuff and the and the impatience and everything i was like it seemed overblown again i kind of felt like was there a scene cut out or was this scene cut down to the you know because it it did it it seemed weird Maybe it was just it would be, it would be too annoying to actually see the full scene play out. Maybe it just it didn't work. I, or and that's a guess. Or, yeah. I mean, it's demeaning, of course, to make the women face the wall, and then if one looked at him, he, you know, he threw Doris against the wall because she peeked. It's it's gross and unsettling and demeaning, but that's what Maddie anticipated. That's the whole point of this. So why is so why does she say to him? Uh, like, just get on with it, or... Not only that, I mean, talk about demeaning. Every one of these places, uh, the women are, are treated so horrendously, and, and our demeaning's kind of like every minute of the day. 
So why this is getting them particularly upset, I don't know. Plus, at the beginning of the scene, Maddie says, they're fine. You're paying them to stand in that position. They'll stand in that position. They've been in more awkward positions. Exactly. And just a couple lines later, she goes, why why not just do what you're going to do? And take her in and get out, please. Yeah. I I, I mean, Maddie perplexes me in this scene. Yeah. I almost felt like that was supposed to be lines for someone else. When she started saying those, I was just like, huh? Weren't you just? Yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't understand this scene. I like the tone of the scene. It's unnerving, and therefore it's effective in that way. I, I thought the tone was weird, because it was like I could understand if Maddie had been on his side and Joni had been on the other side. You could have had that same tone, but it would have made some kind of sense, you know. But as it was, the tone was just like. It was. I was so distracted by why. Why is this tone the way it is? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. We, we've been led to think that Wolcott is going to be violent. So maybe if they had shown him being violent, you, you would understand what's going on. But we haven't seen that. Yeah. If he wants to kill that girl, what's he waiting for? Well, he doesn't seem to want to kill the girl. Well, why are they all convinced he wants to kill the girl? I assume because of his prior activities or something. He's led on to this woman, to Maddie, but, you know, I mean, okay, he's been violent in the past. He's, Carrie says, you know, not to hit her and stuff. Um, He slams that girl into the wall, but uh, I don't know. I also don't know why specifically she's, Maddie is so sure that he wants to kill Carrie, unless he's Mm -hmm. told her flat out. I can conceive of a, of a wrinkle in Maddie's character where she was very gung-ho on this whole idea, but then during this 40 minutes of him lecturing and the demeaning way in which he treated the women, that this the nervousness of the situation just kind of bubbled up inside her until she started speaking out. She wasn't as strong-willed as she thought she was. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. Maybe, and maybe, and maybe going back to... W- how we know that he wants to hurt Carrie. Maybe that's his pattern. Maybe, you know, he has this whole thing that he does with, with girls and Maddie knows it, that, you know, he'll pick one out and he'll, you know, be nice to her and indulge her and all of that and get her to some kind of weird place that he wants her and then, and then kill her or something. I mean, also it's very easy. Well, not easy for me, but easy for Maddie probably to, plan all this and be, you know, you make up your, your mind, you're at peace with it. He's going to, he's going to pick this girl. He's going to do something to her, whatever. But then it comes to the moment. The girl is actually there. You're sitting across from her. You're seeing this guy. He's going to take her into that room. You don't know what's going to happen. And your attitude changes. Plus someone has to clean that mess up. (laughs) They can borrow Jewel. Oh, I guess maybe if they have a good relationship. Hugo is taking a bubble bath at the Bella Union, getting some stink on his Johnson, to quote Cy from earlier. Cy uh. is impatient. He wants Hugo to deliver a document to Merrick before Merrick is too drunk to make it out. I don't think they told us what the document was, but it's something to do with the claims. Yeah. And the whole uh, how claims are going to be decided and overturned and all of that. But I like the fact that this show fairly consistently has a different persona 
you have the public persona of the the very straight-laced, I'm in charge, don't mess with me sort of person. And then you get them into the whorehouse or whatever. And they become kind of foolish. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And they've done that with a, a few different people. And I'm guessing that that may be fairly accurate about people. Yeah. Yeah. They have their their daytime persona and their evening persona. Yeah. Their public persona and their whorehouse persona. Mm-hmm. Well, people are like that. Yeah. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I, I've certainly had the opportunity from you know time to time where I'm at a party or something and there's a politician or a judge or somebody who has a very different perception you know, persona when they're they've had a few drinks in them. Yeah. The worst is just when they're hi- hypocrites. When they speak yeah. out against something, but then yeah. they, later on at night they they do whatever they're against. Right, yeah. right, absolutely. So th- here's my complaint with uh, Stephen Toblaski. You only get a little bit of it in this episode. I think it's more in, in later episodes. But when he does that at the end, there does a little gyration there when she's giving him <laughs> the blowjob. Mm-hmm. It, it just struck me as, as a very modern, like uh, maybe a dance move or like a, he was a stadium <laughs> cheer, like his team scored a touchdown. And it, it just broke it for me. It just was didn't fit Deadwood to me. Hmm. Huh. It was, it was just I, too, too television-y. It was like I'm going for the big laugh. Too broad. Yeah, I can see that it's broad. I feel like he does a lot of that in, in you know in his other episodes. It is broad. I... That I'll definitely give you. Um, but I mean, he'd been going fairly broad with having, you know, soap bubbles like cascading down his face and on yeah, That's top. a nice bit uh, with the, the glasses. Uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he lifts up the glasses to get the soap out of his eyes. Mm hmm. But I feel like the, the broad comedy here has got to be a director's decision or, you know, or a Milch decision. Like during the day, you're very buttoned up. At night, we want to see you look like a joke. Mm-hmm. You have to be a goof. Mm-hmm. And that means soap bubbles on your face. That means you're playing in a bathtub. I mean, he's in a bathtub, for God's sakes. He's, right. I mean, he looks ridiculous. He looks like a child. So he plays it broad, and I, I, f- I feel like that's the character. Yeah. I just feel that, that some of the other comedic uh, actors like uh, E.B. or Merrick, they do it in a way that, that fits in with the time and place of the show. And, again, there's just a little taste of what we'll see in the future with uh, Stephen Tobolowsky on this show, but I feel like he doesn't. He, he, he's not He's not uh, on that same, same wavelength. Hooplecast Season 2, Stephen Tobolowsky. Good actor or bad actor? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's a good actor. Um, I don't see the, the modernistic problem. Um, I, I think people have been throwing their arms up in the air since people had arms. He also comes from a more modern place, Yankton. It's a, an established place. So he would be a little more of an outsider. He would not quite fit into the world. True. He's certainly not the rough and tumble uh, you know, uh, type that we've seen living in Deadwood so far. No, he's he's more of the upper society kind of a a guy he's he's not quite the the kind of that alma's husband was who was just ineffectual and and not very bright i mean this guy he's a bureaucrat and he's he's an operator and he's you know he works for 
a very, very, very wealthy man. Well, well you obviously you can see the difference between him and the guy, say, like Cy Tolliver, in that when, when Hugo Jerry knows that Silas Adams is sitting outside his office for half a day, he's going to stay inside his office and leave the door locked and maybe go out the back window. Uh, yeah, uh, where Cy Tolliver would have would have confronted Silas Adams and maybe killed him, or Adam killed, you know. So he he's not that type of uh, operator that that's been in Deadwood. Oh, he's very meek. Yeah, yeah. I still associate Stephen Tobolowsky with single white female more than any other thing that he's ever been in, because <laughs> he was such a creeper in that. More than Groundhog Day. I think I've only seen that once, whereas <laughs> I've seen single white female. Many times. Uh. <laughs> Guilty pleasure movie. Huh. Yeah, he... Um, I did not find it, it wrong for the character. And maybe maybe as we go forward, you know, I'll see what you're talking about. But I didn't find it... I didn't find it modern um, or anything. I mean, his, his actions. Broad, yes. Um, but we've seen broader on this on this show. I mean, there's some pretty broad performances. There's another man in a bathtub scene, Harold. Do you remember that? It's a bit later in the series. Mm, no. Yeah. Same sort of setup. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Something about these men, when they're around whores, they become, like, infantilized or something. <laughs> they're, like, they really regress, and now they're just goofy children, and they want to be in a bathtub. It's really weird and off-putting. I don't like it. Well, well, well I don't know. In, the, in the, that other scene, which uh, just... It's going to be in season three. That's a wonderful, delightful scene. And it's played by someone who stays in character. And maybe I'll remember to mention feedback when we get to that, you know, in, in a few months. But I don't know. It's just my memory. And I, I just, I love Stephen Toblowski's podcast, which, you know, for anyone who hasn't heard it, give it a listen. It's fantastic. And when I was watching Deadwood for the first time, only like a year or two ago, uh, I and he came on to Deadwood, I was primed to love him on this show and i i just i just didn't so yeah. well we'll have to we'll have to check back in on his performance and and, and evaluate it the way that we did mr timothy oliphant <laughs> well we'll keep that in mind as we go i mean i just don't like the character flat out he's he irritates me as far as the the way they are around the the whores and stuff um you know there's been all those stories about um, the way a lot of times high-powered men like when they hire prostitutes or whatever, um, they can sometimes get into being masochists or, you know, um, being dominated or something like that, you know, as a release from, from their, the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in this, in that part of society at that time, you know, men were supposed to be, in charge all the time and uh strong and you know you, you you're always right you don't cry you know yada 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 and so this would it makes sense that you know they are with prostitutes or whatever they uh they let loose and all of a sudden they can just get rid of all of that pretense that they have to live with constantly Crop Ear has returned to the gem to have his audience with Al, assuming Al is back from Gayville, wink, and <laughs> takes him upstairs, but along the way they stop so Crop Ear can mock Dan for being a cunt who chooses to stand behind a bar. Well, that tears it. Dan slits Crop Ear's throat. <laughs> you know, he's had a tough day. He's had a very tough day. 
Uh, I, I like that murder makes him feel better. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to miss Crop Ear. <laughs> no. He was, he was gross. But that was terrible makeup in that scene going up the stairs. Mm. The left side of Crop Ear was not good. Hmm. I'm just surprised that Al's okay enough to uh, actually I don't spend think some was. time with Crop Ear. I don't think I he would have been. Was. I, I don't think, think he had any intention of bringing Crop Ear yeah, oh, I I, th- I think he was gonna uh, have Crapier come in for a few minutes, just that Crapier couldn't shut his mouth and stop insulting Dan. Yeah, I I agree. I thought he was gonna bring him in, but the way he had said, you know, you let Al answer you in any way that he wants or whatever. I think he wasn't really sure whether he might not an- end up answering for Al. Or he would have brought Cropier into the room and Al would listen and then they would, he would take Cropier outside the room and then they would confer Dan and Al privately. Yeah, or something. With a, by nodding or... Mm-hmm. So what do you think, Al? If, if Al gave a thumbs up or nods, then all right, though, Cropier, you have your deal. Yeah. yeah. Whatever your deal is, I don't even know. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a way of hinting to the audience that come next episode, Al's going to be back and doing whatever he's doing and the storyline is over. Yeah. Apparently, L was to the point of communicating, or so Dan thought. I mean, we also don't know how good Dan's judgment is, or whether it was just wishful thinking on his part. You know, Al can do business now. I, I'm sure he can. Sure, sure, yeah. He he's he's good. So. Well, you know, it's just going to be an amazing scene when uh, Al finds out everything that's been going on during his oh, yeah. Uh, sickness. Oh yeah. I feel bad for Cropier the way I feel bad for Bummer Dan. These are just guys that can't read a room. They don't. Yeah. They don't know the emotional state of all these characters the way that we do. They don't get. And shit. therefore, they get on the wrong side of things. Yeah, but you know what? He's known Dan. Dan said that they. He used to. And there we go again. Where Carol <laughs> hates on poor Cropier the way that she hates <laughs> Bummer Dan. <laughs> I don't hate anybody. No sympathy <laughs> from Carol for these poor, poor deceased characters. <laughs> it's it's not so much that. It's that, you know, these guys, they've been, he's been around Dan. Dan indicated that he used to hang out with these guys occasionally when he felt like it, you know, do a job with them or whatever. They're all dangerous. They're all... I mean, they're all cut from the same basic cloth. They, they're violent. And, and still these, you know, the really stupid ones among them just keep insulting each other. (laughs) Well, well, you gotta think, I mean, I'm just imagining a backstory for Cropier that you had to have insulted somebody, got into a fight, and they ripped both of his ears off in the fight. So he probably has, has done, you know, opened his mouth and said stupid things to the wrong person multiple times in his life. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I I definitely think this is, a lot of these people are, uh, I you know what, maybe it's because I run into students like this, and you try and tell them, you're going to end up in so much trouble in your life, you're going to run into the wrong person, you know, or don't treat girls this way, because if they don't take you out, their brother, or their father, or somebody is going to take you out, just, you know, you're gonna to end up smarten up. Just yeah, be smarter. You're, you're gonna <laughs> yeah. end up behind bars. You're gonna end up hurt. Something bad is gonna happen to you. You need to, you know, shape up, and you need to not run your mouth. There are people like that. I have a lot of clients who talk themselves into getting arrested. Yeah, you know, 
they're they're yeah. that close to getting off with whatever you know a warning or just go home, but they can't leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Stupid yeah. people like to talk a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you theorized, Harold, that Cropier lost his ears because of something that somebody did to him. I had assumed, I don't know, I had no basis for this assumption, but I had assumed it was probably something like frostbite or something. That's possible, too. The elements took his ears. It kind of looks, it kind of looks like that because, I mean, it doesn't look like his ears were cut off. It looks like they were burnt off or something. I mean, Mm. as you pointed out, there's like those I mean, those are some big holes. They're ripped off by a bridge troll. <laughs> <laughs> Anything random. But but this is another uh, instance of, okay, here's a character that's missing ears. We're not going to tell you why. Just go with it. There's a lot of just go with it in this episode. Well, I think there's, in in the West in general, they can do, they can, with a Western, they can actually do a lot of that because there were a lot of people who ran into a lot of stuff and there wasn't plastic surgery in it. And all back in those days, so <laughs> they just give him a fake wooden ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people would cut off people's ears and stuff, but yeah, it really did look like they were burnt off or something awful, really awful happened to him. Technically, a cool scar like that should make you look like a badass, but not in this case. No, it was grody. Yeah, you'd it- also you'd also think he'd grow his hair out or wear a hat. Did he have a hat? I think he had a hat. Yeah, yeah, he did. Did he have a hat? Or a headscarf. (laughs) (laughs) A burka. Mr. W asks Carrie if Maddie withheld her to frustrate him. Carrie doesn't know why Maddie does the things she does. (laughs) Neither do we. No. (laughs) We really, really don't. (laughs) Carrie hates it here. She wishes she was in New York. Mr. W, however, does not hate it here because the rocks talk to him. Carrie says, well, they don't talk to me because I'm not a crazy person. Hmm. Another subtle person who really... Needs to not talk. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. W gives her some money. She instructs him, don't hit me like you do the others. She grinds on him a bit, and only a little bit, because he's too quick. Maybe (laughs) next time they could try it with his prick outside the pants. Okay, so he's a premature ejaculator on top of everything else. That's weird about him. So is that it? Is that why he gets angry? Uh, is that our running thesis? But he didn't seem to get angry with her. She's just too damn sexy. That's why he ejaculated prematurely. I guess he just he should have masturbated, but he waited weeks for her to come out. And, <laughs> and she finally got there. Oh, <laughs> damn. All the anticipation just... <laughs> I, I didn't even notice anything happen, like, on his, like any reaction on his part. You mean an orgasm? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah, yeah. It was just like I, I came already or something. You know, I just said it, but I, I didn't. I didn't even see any excitement. <laughs> Barely. Yeah, he's not. I don't think he's the type of guy that gets very excited, though. He probably still contains it. Probably violence that gets him excited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's weird. Though. That's weird. Be- that's so weird because he because he ejaculated right away. So you'd think that he was excited. Do you know what I mean? Like it could be a physical reaction. He just doesn't have any emotional reactions. Yeah, so maybe he needs maybe to be emotionally invested, he needs to be hitting someone. Somebody like that, honestly, it's like trying to figure out what makes them tick is a very deep well. Any other thoughts on Carrie and Mr. W? 
No, I'm just, I just want him to go away. Yeah. Or tell me what he wants. Yeah. Yeah, I just so, wish I they would set like, up better. I want to... Joan to... Joni? I want her to get rid of Maddie. I just want her to kick her out and just run things on her own. I don't think she needs anybody else. Just, you can do this. Come on. I mean, I like Wolcott a lot as a character. I think he, he's a great actor. Uh, and Garrett Delahunt. And, and it's an interesting yeah. character. I've liked Joni up until this point. Yeah. Um, it's it just something's not working in the way they're writing these scenes. Yeah. Something Something's just missing. Yeah. Uh, the inconsistency with Maddie really is what bothers me the most. Uh, I I think I've figured out Wolcott. He's just sexually repressed, and he gets high on violence more than he does on sex. Mm. And he has a lot of money, so he can probably purchase the girls he needs to, to hurt. Yeah. Like, that makes sense to me. Uh, Joni's ambivalence and her just kind of disgust, like, I just left the Bella Union and crazy sight Oliver and now here I am again in another situation with, with a, a man I can't control I understand her I, I understand Carrie just wanting to be back in New York she doesn't like being in, in Deadwood she's mouthy and she makes sense the only one who doesn't fit is Maddie mm. yeah even when Maddie's making sense though there is there is something wrong with their, with the scenes yeah. I I have to agree with Harold on that it's just Maddie, a lot of what Maddie is doing doesn't make sense. And even when she does, it's, there's something awkward about the whole thing and it's just not meshing. Our final scene of the episode, Al is in bed staring at the ceiling. He says, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Sigh of relief. I wasn't sure if that came from his mouth or if it like came from his penis. <laughs> just air escaping. Yeah, just relief. <laughs> It came from his mouth. You could see it on the film. <laughs> you couldn't see his penis, though, so you don't know if it came out of both. <laughs> <laughs> Matt predicted that Al has his kidney stone removed, and there's a funeral for it. Oh. Mel says she followed up with, Then Jumbo jumps up and eats it, and the whole town hates Jumbo even more, so they grab their pitchforks and torches, and they set out to kill Jumbo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jumbo was not in this episode. Oh, I know. It's because he was eaten. He was replaced yeah. by oatmeal. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sad. A handful of oatmeal. <laughs> uh, but he did, Al did have his kidney stone removed. Well, no, he removed it himself oh. through the power of urination. And Jewel the stomach screams. <laughs> Matt, you also said on a more serious note, Joni outmaneuvers Wilcott so that Maddie takes the brunt of his attention. Huh. Mm, nope. But would have been cool. Nope. Mel predicted that Miss Isringhausen will develop a gleet problem from all the stress. <laughs> uh, nope. <laughs> Carol predicted Al's situation will be resolved and Al will live. Correct. Miss Isringhausen will take revenge on Alma by getting in contact with her family in New York. Mm, close enough. Well, yeah, that's pretty close because we're seeing some, uh, some... Miss Isringhausen is up to something. Yeah. I don't know what. She's definitely either taking revenge or she's been in on it all along. I asked you to predict how many swigs of alcohol we would see on screen. Matt said six. Mel said 12. Carol said eight. I only counted four. Mm. No. That was I a think, pretty low number. I think you're setting us up for failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but also, I want to point out that Miss Inrighausen, or whatever her name is, that was like a triple. Um, <laughs> well, 
It was all in one swig, though. This is true. Good try. Yeah. Uh, Gotta give it a shot. Well, I guess we give it to Matt by default, because he was the closest. He said six. Woot. Default. Default. Anyone want to contest that, since last time Matt contested Carol's win? No, I didn't mean it. I'm bigger than that. All right, first bit of feedback is from Nutty. Carol, would you read this, please? Sure. Ellsworth is awesome. His history with Mr. W slash Hurst and how he figured out their game plan right off the bat. I love how Alma handled Farnsworth. I was rooting for her the whole time. That was awesome. I'm worried for Joni. So Seth and his wife finally had sex, but they were super weird after. Is it because it was bad, or did he not perform? His wife looked like she regretted it. Not a bullock bullock shipper, but I feel bad because they are trapped. Nuchas. Hmm. <laughs> she also liked the Alma scene, as did I. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I have email from the person we thought we, it was previously dead, Corey. Oh, you no, you did ew. not do your job sufficiently because he sent in feedback this time. I did do my job sufficiently. He sent in feedback. That's true. Oh, okay. That's she, she, let, she went right. down there and she like she crept up like upon his sleeping form. You don't know. You weren't there. You weren't there. <laughs> Shut up. I'll, I'll tell it. I'll tell it. I'll tell it what happened. Okay. I crept up. <laughs> I just I just basically put a knife to his throat. I was like, you better send the feedback. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and you took one of his ears as a trophy. I did. I did. I forgot about that. It's right here. <laughs> I have I have it in a little glass case. <laughs> Matt, would you like to read Corey's email? Hello. Hoopleheads and potential squareheads or corniers. First order of business. <laughs> Mel, what? <laughs> I don't get it. First order of business. Mel, what type and color car do you typically drive while carrying out a hit? Oh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a company secret. <laughs> uh, Martha, you old horn dog, you trying to start a conversation in the morning because it's a good time for such intercourse. <laughs> the question has to be asked. How long until Seth starts selling blue laudanum? Mm. <laughs> oh, Breaking Bad reference. <laughs> and will that be what leads him and Alma back to each other? Whitney sure doesn't seem like seem to like Francis, no matter how much Wolcott attempts to butter his bread. A man opposed to inevitable change it needn't invariably be called a Luddite. It's probably the biggest compliment Ellsworth has had since he came to camp. <laughs> Ellsworth isn't given enough credit, though, as he instantly sees through the false rumors that Walcott has Mayor Farnham and Cy spreading around the camp. Speaking of which, I love the way Alma completely turned the tables on E.E.B. about selling his hotel if the camp was on the verge of collapsing. Poor Miss Isringhausen was fired. Whatever shall she do? She'll, sh she'll suffer from paranoid delusions. That's what she'll do. Or is she manipulating the camp into turning against Alma for revenge? Either way, I do not think... Even a pissed, of, pissed off Alma will make an attempt on her life. Look who's arrived in Deadwood. That's right, it's the original principal of Sunnydale High, Stephen Tobolowsky. Oh, was he? Yeah, he, he was the, in the uh, original pilot. In the pilot. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It seems he's a commissioner now, and it seem, seems no secret that Adams murdered Magistrate Claggett, although I cannot remember if Adams actually killed him or did, or Al did once he has successfully wooed Adams to his employ. 
I think Al did, didn't he? No, Silas did. He slit the magistrate's throat. Right. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was kind of his Al's yeah. test to see if whose side Silas right. was. Silas had just missed his opportunity earlier. Um, what will this mean for Silas as annexation moves forward? Do you all find Alice Krieg to be creepy as fuck, or is that just <laughs> residual from her role as the Borg Queen? Maddie seems far more evil. <laughs> is she really willing to sell the life of a young woman in exchange for enough money to fund a comfortable retirement? Is that the real reason she was willing to partner with Joni? Because she knew Woolcott was heading to Deadwood also, and that and had pre had a prearranged deal with Walcott about a whore he favored? Was Dan abused as a child? Once he killed Eamon, he immediately blamed the victim and even seemed to see himself as a victim. Uh, I don't know if he was abused as a child, but Dan was just having a hard day. He might have been. <laughs> okay? he, he was just having a tough day. Well, yeah, but it might have been. A lot of kids were hit back then. I people were. <laughs> Mr. Wu seems to have a new enemy, a tall Chinese San Francisco cocksucker. <laughs> If a showdown between the, them looms, I'm sure, I sure hope Mr. Wu comes out on top. As I prefer his swedgen, swedgen, white cocksucker rantings to Mr. Lee's English. <laughs> did Mr. Lee use any English? Oh yeah, he did. He did? Okay. He um, one word or one phrase? Something. He, mm. he only said maybe one thing. That actor, by the way, Philip Moon, I recognize him as, uh, Jack Abbott's son from Young and the Restless. <laughs> from like 20 years ago <laughs> there was a story arc where Jack Abbott had this long lost son and played by Philip Moon and then his son went away and we haven't heard about him again since 20 years mm. later and he's never met, been mentioned again wow and yet I still associate that actor with that uh, role you should write them a letter and complain, complain. Yeah. Bring, bring back Philip Moon tweet a thon it's been 20, 20 25 years too, too late Bring him back. It's never too late with soap operas. They'd probably just get a different actor. I don't have anything to say about Al in this episode, as his scenes are too painful to even think about. This seems, or this episode seems to be a lot of setup. I give it a 7.5 out of 10 bubble bath blowjobs. Uh, P.S. Fun subjective fact. In the 4400, Garrett Dillahunt plays a character I would describe as a mashup of Wolcott and Cromarty named Matthew. <laughs> uh, P.S.S. If host Matt has this episode out by Wednesday night, oh, wait, he may indeed save my life as I will be passing through NB on the 17th and 18th. So if I'm never heard from again, I'm probably hanging from a set of deer antlers in a random Irving Big Stop. <laughs> <laughs> Signed X. Don't be fucking looking over my shoulder while I'm signing the fucking X. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Corey. <laughs> Thank you. Mm. Well, thanks for letting me know of the exact dates you'll be in New Brunswick. <laughs> She's going to put up your own ro- fucking death warrant. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to put up a roadblock at the big stop. <laughs> so what is a big stop? Is it just a... It's like a truck stop. Truck stop? You go, it's it's yeah. like a restaurant. Yeah. Restaurant, just, convenience store, gas station. Yeah. And it's owned by our uh, the local billionaire family. We yeah. have our we have some evil billionaires. Oil billionaires. Yeah. The Irvings. Yeah. Hmm. Don't call them evil. You work for them. I work for them. (laughs) (laughs) You do. Yeah. (laughs) They're still evil. (laughs) Do you work on the oil pipeline? 
No, no, we don't work for the oil part. We work for the woodlands. They, they're like war. war they're like warring within their yeah, own family, within and they split family. off. There's an yeah. Irving Oil, which is one company, and, and we it, work for Ir- JD Irving, which is stuff like forestry and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I've got some audio feedback from Will. Yay! Yay. These threats worked. They did. Hey guys, I just finished watching the latest episode, which I can't remember the name of right now, but. Yeah, beginning with the Bullock household, they're just so awkward, but I love (laughs) watching them the way they had to negotiate, you know. And I did also, I love the way that Ellsworth stood up to Wilcott, showing that he's not a stupid guy. He kind of picked up on everything that was happening. And Stephen Tobolowsky, I love seeing him pop up on shows. Um... I forgot that he was even in this show. Um, I, I love when he played, um, what's the, um, Faraday girl, um, Veronica Mars's father on Heroes. <laughs> Wish he had lasted longer on that show. I do like a lot of the interactions we saw in this show between characters like Dan and Adams and Joni and Maddie and Alma and Farnham. I love the way she handled Farnham did kind of feel bad for Isle because even with all of our modern medicine I hate the idea of surgery and even just a simple procedure I'm glad they found another way to cure him that was gross but also kind of funny at the same time <laughs> there's a quote that I liked uh, panic's easier on the back than the shorthanded shovel sorry if I'm stealing quotes but kind of like that one go Ellsworth and so I did, I was really into the episode, so um, until that little scene in the, for some reason that scene in the tub with the, uh, Commissioner Tobolowsky, that kind of took me out of it a little bit. So this episode is like when everything's going good and bad, but then your partner says or does something weird and then you just can't perform <laughs> to me recently um yeah so I'll talk to you guys later i'm gonna go get some stank on my johnson Wait, <laughs> no never mind uh later guys bye yeah it's funny because his name is willie johnson <laughs> <laughs> didn't even think about that uh sounds like he didn't like the bathtub scene either there you go vindicated the bathtub thing seemed to too silly for my my taste. Too silly. I like some silliness on this show, but that one didn't fit for some reason. Yeah, well, Harold said too broad, which I would agree with. It did feel too broad. Uh, last bit of feedback is audio feedback from Jonathan. Yay! You're right. The threats worked. <laughs> we need to do more threats. We need to threaten people more often. Yeah. We should pick another name out of the hat. Harold, this is all protected by attorney-client privilege, right? <laughs> Oh, these death threats? Uh, unfortunately, you can't, you can't tell anybody, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't apply to... Uh, Podcasts? Imminent death. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, here's feedback from Jonathan. Hey guys, just some thoughts on this episode while I uh, make some water to make some coffee. Uh, right now we're at like four episodes uh, since we've seen Ricky J. So this is Ricky J. Watch. Uh, so far, this this season... No Ricky J. Uh, don't know when we're going to get Ricky J. back. Kind of upset about his uh, going missing, but otherwise everything's fine. Um, I did like this episode. I kind of think this episode, as far as the character of Al goes, it's sort of funny because Al hasn't done anything, but I think it's really instructive uh, 
to what we saw from Al in the first season, especially when he seemed to be going crazy and thought that uh, uh, Bullock and, and Wild Bill Hickok were working together and he saw conspiracies everywhere. You kind of see how when he's out of commission for really what appears to be just a, a few days, maybe a week, uh, everything can go straight to hell. Uh, he is He's not really paranoid uh, if they're really all out to get him. So, um, I, I liked a lot of things. I liked Trixie and Dan this episode. They had one scene together. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I liked Charlie Utter, even though uh, I don't think he was in this episode. I don't remember actually seeing him, but I always liked Charlie. So, uh, I'm going to give this episode to Charlie, because, you know, I like him. And uh, I didn't have any other real thoughts. Well, no, I actually really liked Doc this episode. Um, I, I enjoyed his his relief at not having to operate on Al. I enjoyed his uh, fear at the fact that he might have to operate on Al. Um, uh, also, Cy Tolliver sucks. Uh, <laughs> fuck Cy. Yes. So that's, uh, that's my thoughts on this episode. Uh, next time, I will try and have more uh, thought-out thoughts. But, uh, but this time, I'm just trying to stay off the murder list. So I'll talk to you guys... Uh, well, let's see. Do I have any other thoughts on this? Um, I don't know. Oh, that's the water. Gotta go. Bye. <laughs> you know, just like just like the doc was happy not to have to operate on Al's Gleep, I'm really happy I don't have to kill Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> it's an expensive flight. <laughs> and I like to imagine that Jonathan is boiling water to sterilize instruments because he's going to perform an operation yes. on somebody. He he's going to cut a coffee bean in half. He also said he's <laughs> going to make water. That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Unless he just was talking about going, going pee. Go urinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got to make this. I just assumed. <laughs> it's old fashioned. And then he boiled it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the feedback, Nutty, Corey, Will. And Jonathan. You guys are hey, off the murder hey, list. Thank you. Who's on the murder list this yes, who week? Who is on the murder list this week? Well, I, you know what? Moira has to go on the list because I really wanted medical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Moira's medical and minute. It's disappointing when you don't get that, especially in a medically centered who else episode. Is, who else has sent us feedback? Has Steph sent us feedback? Yes. Yeah, we've Rob. been missing Steph's feedback, Robin's okay. feedback, uh... No feedback from Emily this time, though she sent some last time. She did, but she's still on the murder list. <laughs> this list ain't going anywhere. I'm not I'm not forgiving. If you miss once, you're back on the murder list. <laughs> Hopefully I get a pass for, for guesting. Yes, you oh, yes, are yes. here. If you're, yes. if you're here, you have an excuse. I don't expect feedback if you're if you're he actually here. No, it's fine. I forgive for that kind of stuff, but and I don't know if you've ever missed an episode sending in feedback. Maybe one. Yeah, so. I get at least once. You uh, you get gold stars all around. Yes. This is a hard show to send in feedback. It is. It's a hard show to do, period, just because there's so much to talk about. It it really is very dense. Yeah. So, Harold, why don't you rate this episode? Sum it up for us. Give us a rating. You know, uh... This, I think it's an interesting decision that they made to, uh, you know, start out this season and have Al kind of recede as a character while they bring in these new characters um, and start all these plot lines that occur in Al's absence. It's an interesting decision. I'm not sure it was a it was really a good decision, considering that uh, I, I didn't watch this live, but 
you know, it obviously was not the hit show right away that uh, they were hoping for. And but the one breakthrough character that they had was Al Swearingen, that I do remember was getting a lot of press for Ian McShane. And then they they did this. And not only did they remove him, they didn't just have him, you know, visit another town and disappear for a little while like Charlie Utter does or Jane. But but they put him in this gruesome situation that uh, uh, it's bad for the character. Um, and this is more of a setup episode for future episodes. We, we meet a lot of characters, a lot of new plots are kind of put in motion. Um, as we've been discussing this episode, my, my opinion of it has, has, has gone down a little bit. Just as we're seeing, I'm seeing kind of the cracks and that even the setup wasn't, wasn't quite nailed as it, as it should have been. Uh, I, I'm, I'm grading this at, at a higher level than I would for, for other shows. The, the, the dialogue is still really good throughout, but I, I for Deadwood, in comparison to other Deadwood episodes, it has to get a lower rating. So I'm giving this six out of ten San Francisco cocksuckers. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Carol. Well, I also, as we've been discussing it, I've been like, oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, failures. Let's put it in you know different scenes and stuff. The Joni uh, Maddie scenes were weird and and didn't really work um but on the plus side you have some really nice character development for dan i mean in some ways this was like dan's episode mm-hmm. um al isn't the only one that's been taking a back seat so has uh, seth uh, he's got you know a couple scenes there with martha but then he's really out of it out of the episode as well so you can just see Dan and Trixie, um, and, and the doc, even though he's not in it all that long, also has some very meaningful, um, meaningful development. Um, so, so I don't want to discount the development on that. And oh, and of course, Alma's scenes, you know, Alma's got some wonderful things going on. And uh, the actress does a beautiful job on all of it. And then Ellsworth. We've got character development there with Ellsworth. Um, so I don't want to discount all that stuff for some of the cracks and stuff. But I can't give it a really high rating. I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with 7. 7 out of 10 missing motivations and backstories. Okay. Matt. Um, I liked parts of it a lot and parts of it I really didn't like. And I think we've talked about all of that, really. We didn't like Garrett Dillahunt's parts and the Joni parts and anything to do with them. I didn't really like that much. But everything else I thought was great. I'm just trying to decide how many points to take off for that whole stuff, from, yeah. from that whole plot that I didn't like. Um, I guess I'll give it a eight. We'll take off two points. Oh, you're very generous. <laughs> I'll give it a eight, sounds good. eight out of the ten messy pants. <laughs> <laughs> Hide those pants under rock. <laughs> Mel? Uh, I I probably, I wouldn't give it that high of a rating. No. I felt bored through most of this episode. Even when it wasn't the Garrett Dillahunt stuff? Yeah, no, it was better when it wasn't, but just that, that was half the episode, pretty much. Yeah. Which, eh. Okay, 7.5. <laughs> <laughs> for you or for her? For me. 
Okay. <laughs> You're deciding my rating for me. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to decide, woman. Mel gives it a two. <laughs> no, I'm gonna give it a six out of ten. Um, Sticky Johnsons. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was gonna start it in eight, but then as we were talking about it, I realized that there really was a lot of like not mystery, just bad Confusion. plotting. Yeah, yeah. A lot of us having to fill in blanks. Yeah, for That's things. Not and, and I don't. Thing. I well, I don't mind it. Like the Miss Isringhausen thing. Like I figured out pretty quickly that they. I mean that they must have known each other as hotel guests, but. The way that he was acting all shy and bashful told me right away that they didn't actually know each other. Yeah. So the body language clued me in on that. But the whole thing with Maddie is so perplexing. Like yeah. why they gave her those lines that they gave her. I mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't I didn't like that. But um I loved when they all collapsed on Elle's bed. <laughs> it was just a great moment. It was yes. it was great. And Elma outmaneuvering E B not that that's very difficult to do because he's an idiot. It's still very satisfying. And this was a great episode for Dan and Ellsworth, two characters who are consistently great, but in here they got so much good material. So I'm going to go seven and a half out of ten scowls for cutting through the taint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I love the woo scene with woo and Dan. Yes. That's kind of just more great Dan goodness. But um, yeah. Dan was pretty great this episode. And we did get character development for Wu. Yeah, a little bit. We yeah. now know that he's purposely not learning English. <laughs> I wonder if if Wu were to learn more English, would that make him more respected in his community or less respected? Would would, would his um, countrymen view him as too much of an assimilator, selling out, the white man's puppet kind of thing? Or will they respect that he is... Uh, He's bettered himself, and now he can negotiate. He's not take, being taken advantage of because he understands everything now. I wonder. I don't know. During that exchange with Dan, Wu says, I'm, and I'm going to mangle this Chinese, Dio now ma gahai ni go bak guailo, which, according to the transcripts, translates as, Fuck your mother, you white cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Harold, who's your character of the episode? It's Alma um, for that scene with EB. I mean, she really... Uh, just you know, took a page out of his book, and and uh, just you know, she she played it perfectly and had his uh, head spinning. And uh, you know, Eb would have done a lot better if he had just uh, approached her and said, "Boy, there's some rumors flying, but I don't believe them." <laughs> you know, then mm-hmm. she would wonder what's going on if he's not uh, part of it. But uh, uh, she was perfect the way she uh, she did that. So she's my character. Okay, Carol. Uh, I'm just gonna take Alma. Um... Can also take Alma. Yeah, I think I've got to go with Alma. She, uh, she's really, she's coming into her own. She's, she's taking charge of, of things and she's, um, you know, she played EB perfectly. And, you know, yeah, I gotta go with Alma. Okay. Matt? Uh, I'm gonna go with Dan. Just because I feel so bad that he had such a, such a horrible day. And I like I liked seeing him him cry. Matt, do you want to give us Mel's character, or are we going to let her speak for a change? <laughs> well, she's not here, so uh, <laughs> she she went upstairs to put some rice on real quick. Just one sec. Hey, Mel, who's your character? <laughs> she's coming. Damn it! I knew this would happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan. 
Dan? Yeah. That's what I said. Yeah, I like Dan. I liked crying. Alma too, though, because I really liked the way she kind of just like she charmed her way. <laughs> but but I like, uh, no, I like Dan. I like how emotional he gets. It's, aw, it's adorable. Will I break the tie or will I be uh, uh, spoil it and say Ellsworth? Because I'm tempted to say Ellsworth too, because he was great. I was yeah, tempted. But- what about Doc? Well. I thought Doc would get it. Uh, he was okay, but I've liked him more in other things, yeah, other episodes. Yeah. He's. You know, he didn't really do his operation. If he had done his operation, he would have been a con- contention. But uh, yeah, I can't commend the the character of Doc, but I can commend uh, the actor who portrayed him. <laughs> he did. A, yeah. he had a great episode. I, lo- I love that he thought the the patient had saved him. Yes, the other way. But... Yes, he did. Yeah, no, that... he did. He did say thank you for saving <laughs> me. <laughs> I, yeah, that was great, great line. That's great. And earlier he says. I do not need to kill another man. Yeah. We have not seen him kill anyone on this show, I don't think, so this must have been something, another blank we're left to fill in. Yeah, but that's the kind of blank that, I mean, we know this guy's gone through a lot, and from what, you know, he went through the Civil War, and the fact is that doctors were just, they had to be butchers during the Civil War, and half the stuff they were doing, the, the people died anyway. You know, I mean, they were going to die and they had to take the chance and try and do something to help them live. But most of the time they died. Well, my character of the week is Alma, just because I absolutely love that scene. And she's one of my favorite characters on the show and I haven't picked her yet. So Hmm. there you go. I mean, Dan is also one of my favorite characters on the show and I haven't picked him yet. But I just thought Alma was great. I just... Evie is such a weasel, so to have him being just taken down by her was great. Quotes. Harold is the guest. You may go first. Okay, this one's from Wolcott. Um, Well, that's an uncivil response to an innocent error. (laughs) Carol? Well, we've said it a number of times, but I still loved it, and that was, thank you for saving me, Al. Matt or Mel? Uh, Fight it out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you slapping me? <laughs> yep. Man might use some time to put some some stink on his Johnson. <laughs> Ew. Ew. Bomb, you fucking idiot! Against the burn, you just fucking. Oh no, wait. You just. No, no. I keep reading that wrong. <laughs> you fucking just sustained. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mine's a Johnny quote. Why don't you learn to talk American? <laughs> I had the quote about writing the X, but someone else already said it, so... In the feedback. About what? Oh, the, the X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Writing the X. Mm, I like this Trixie quote. Are you afraid, Al? Oh, God, I'm on his fucking nuts. <laughs> 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 that was pretty great. Here's Trixie and Dan. Say you'll burn it down with me, Dan. What? The fucking place before letting Tolliver take it over. Done. I've got an exchange between Alma and E.B. Mrs. Garrett, what male would not trade our small superiority of intellect to possess that gift of intuition so bountifully bestowed on the lesser sex? Mr. Farnham, your meaning is beyond me. (laughs) I just don't know what you could be talking about. Oh, dear me. I'm so confused. (laughs) All right. If that's it, uh, next episode has the very memorable title of Complications. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's going to have to do with uh, 
a love triangle mm-hmm. between between well between Alma and Seth and uh, what's her face Martha Martha, Martha yeah. Oh, maybe there's going to be complications with uh, Al's Gleet. I know he's gotten rid of it, but this, this, there may be, like, added complications. Complications was the name of uh, the Terminator episode I just watched as well from my other podcast. Really? Yeah. And what happened in that episode? <laughs> maybe we maybe can mirror this episode. Okay, so in the next episode of Deadwood, Sarah turns to Dr. Sherman where she begins having nightmares. Jesse tries to convince Derek that she has captured an important figure from the future, Ooh. and John and Cameron discover that Crow Marty's body is missing. Okay, so this is a time paradox episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna discover that um uh, Garrett Dillahunt, Garrett Dillahunt is missing. missing. His body's missing. <laughs> uh, he died all of a sudden. We don't know how. Um, that was like in an in between kind of you know. Mm-hmm. Because Deadwood does that a lot anyways. They they get things to happen and you don't see it happen until they talk about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it'll be like the episode Monday from The X-Files where Deadwood gets a bank but then it explodes and then time resets and it just keeps exploding. Okay. <laughs> so it's like a groundhog day, Stephen Toblowski. <laughs> yeah, there it is. It fits. It all fits. Carol, do you have a prediction? Complications? Um. Well, I think... Al is going to throw a monkey wrench into an awful lot of things that that uh, Wolcott and Cy and everybody thought they had all worked out. Um, yeah, complications. I think I think there's going to be complications on every single thing that we saw happening this episode. Like this episode was the the setup for the next one, and so. I mean, Al might have medical complications. He probably will, but he's going to end up being a, a complicating force to Cy and Wolcott and um, Stephen Tobolowsky, whatever his name is, the commissioner. Okay, so you think that Al is the complication? I think well to I their think plans. I think he's one of them. I think Al's a complication for them. I think the. There will be some kind of complication between Seth and Martha. I'm not sure Alma is going to be the one yet. Seems like that's going to be back burner for a little while. But Seth and Martha are definitely not out of the woods. Um, part of me wondered whether there was something going on with, like, I don't know. There's, I see a pregnancy in the future there somehow. I'm not, I don't know. Um, and then uh, who else do we have? Oh, well. Yeah, the Joni and Maddie thing, that's already so complicated. I don't know what could get more complicated there, but that's that's enough for now. Okay. Yeah. I will tell you up front that this episode title, there's a little bit of trivia behind it, because when this episode originally aired, it was called Difficulties. <laughs> but then when it was released on DVD, someone changed the name to Complications. So in a lot of DVD sets, it actually says Complications, Formerly Difficulties. Oh. Hmm. That changes things entirely. So, I does it really, though? <laughs> yeah. There's a big difference between difficulties and complications. Explain this difference. <laughs> well, if something is difficult, it's hard to do or... or like a complication. <laughs> exactly. No, but a complication means that there's another element added to something. If something becomes more complicated, it... It becomes more difficult. <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> not necessarily. Something can be a, a 
you're adding another element. You're having, it's a more complex situation. But if it's difficult, I mean, you can have difficulty without having complication. Um, if, if I'm trying to get a lid off a bottle, it can be difficult. It's stuck. It's difficult. It's not complicated. It's a lid. It's a bottle. It's hard to get off. What's inside this bottle? Um, I'm thinking fruit juice. Oh, cranberry juice, I hope. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and it all comes full circle. <laughs> so when you're looking up this episode to watch, folks out there, you may come across your DVD set as saying that it's called Complications, Formerly Difficulties. That's why it seems to have two two titles. Although the one that we're just going by is Complications because that's the one that seems to be agreed upon. Well, I look I forward to finding out whether they're complications or difficulties. It is it is it is the lie agreed upon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, considering that Stephen Tobolowski has told so many stories about David Milch changing his mind about scripts and rewriting at the last second, it's kind of fitting that even after the episode came out the uh, titles changed. Yeah, but he hates episode titles. <laughs> I've also heard, okay. which is why John from Cincinnati is his visit day 1, his visit day 2. <laughs> Maybe this is why he can't he can't make up his mind on what what a good title is. We'll have to decide when we're talking about the next one which would have felt like the better title. Yeah. If we want to revisit the semantics. Of I this haven't argument. I haven't been super thrilled about the titles on this show anyway. Not that I'm a great title person, but I love a good title. I have to say that pretty much after complications, the titles get really good. Okay. Something to look forward to, I guess. I think Requiem for a Gleet's pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) How can you get any better than that? (laughs) We're going to do a miscellaneous count also, and this is what it's going to be. I have decided individual words spoken by Richardson. (laughs) And these include articles, uh, the, no matter how short the word is, if it is a word spoken by Richardson... It counts as one. Therefore, if he has a sentence, that might be six words. So is he going to have more than a sentence? Is he going to even show up? He may not even show up. Mm. Individual words spoken by Richardson. How many are we going to have? Zero. Individual words or sounds, right? Well, sound is not a word. I know. Well, that's what I'm asking. Because it sounded like you said, um, was one of them. No, uh. 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 Oh, uh, okay. So I think in the past two episodes, he's had zero lines, I think. So I'm going to say zero. Okay. Mel? I'm going to say three. Three words. Or three. I love you. That's what I'll say. (laughs) I love you. I love you. (laughs) He has to whisper it. (laughs) You know, there has to be an episode where he just steps out and has a long soliloquy. Yeah. He might. Might happen. That'll ha- that'll be the day that he kills EB. <laughs> he'll like put one leg on top of EB's dead chest and he'll just burst out into soliloquy. Say all the words. Yes. <laughs> we actually have some lines in that one episode where I don't know where EB and he were like in a um I don't know what it was. They it seemed like they were having there were actual sentences being spoken, but maybe I'm misremembering. Huh. So Matt predicted zero. Mel said three. Carol, what do you? What do you I guess say? I'll go with like one. 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 Okay. He says no. Yeah. <laughs> or okay. yes. Does huh count? <laughs> huh? Huh is a word. Yeah. What about grunting? 
A grunt is not a word. We can always we can always debate it next time. Well, thank you for joining us, Harold. Do you have any projects you want to promote? Uh, um, websites, podcasts, Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, Instagram, LinkedIn's. Yeah, I'm on all those, and I was, as Carol will may remember. I, I think it was back in March. I was on an episode of the McKinley Cast. May see the light of day one of these days. So Absolutely. look out for that. Yeah, I, an episode. Of, I think it was a uh, choking and token. Yep. Of course I remember, Harold. Um, absolutely. I don't know. I'm still working on making McKinley Cast finish. We've now published more episodes than McKinley Cast. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> the question is, will we finish the series before they finish their series? <laughs> hmm. I've got to get on everybody's case. I haven't, I haven't, uh, haven't nagged people lately. Anybody else? Yeah. Nothing going on? I've got stuff, but everybody knows. Yeah, Defenders podcast. Everybody yeah. knows. Mm. What do we make podcast? It's about Terminator. Yep. And cool. Sarah Connor Chronicles. All right, as always, you can find us at hooplecast.com, Twitter at hooplecast, go in the Facebook group, search for hooplecast. We have fun times. And send feedback to hooplecast at gmail.com. Go on iTunes, leave a review. Five stars, nothing less. All right, that's it. Goodbye. Bye. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Bye. Fuck your mother, you white cocksucker. (laughs) I've pulled down my legs and the chills. Ooh, do you know you have the face of a genius? I'll send your love to Zeus. Ooh, by the time you read this, I'll be well in touch. Giving it all in a moment or two. I'm giving it all in a moment. Giving it up all, giving it, giving it, giving it. This kicking here inside makes me leave you behind. No more under the quilt to keep you moving. Your sister, I was born. You must lose me like an arrow shot into the key.
Somewhere between um, Alma's hus- husband and uh, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> right. Can you just can you just scream out your window? Hey, we're recording a podcast here. You know what? Hang, down. hang on, just one second. I'm just gonna close the window. Now it just sounds like somebody's being thrown in a wood chipper. <laughs> <laughs> they've now switched from a. Um, hang on, and they've gotten closer to my window. They've now switched from a lawnmower to a weed whacker. Oh. <laughs> good, good gravy. Hang on. I've got to pull the fan out of the window. Close the window. <laughs> now, of course, they've decided to stop. But I've got the window closed. Sorry about that. Unacceptable. <laughs> so we were talking about... Write a, write a very sternly worded letter to your neighbor. <laughs> Every other Sunday we record a podcast. Keep, it, keep your noise down. I, yes. I have to have the window open. Can I, Carol, can I have your neighbor's address? I'll just go and kill them for you. No. <laughs> She's got that bloodlust. I can tell. Goodness. You've already killed all the listeners to this podcast already. <laughs> Not all of them. Not yet. I, I really do think he's done now because I closed the window and there's absolutely nothing happening outside. Well, that's because I killed him. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Somebody like that, honestly, it's like trying to figure out what makes them tick is yeah a very deep well. What's all the shuffling? Keep hearing shuffling. Yeah. Someone's doing the two-step. <laughs> Someone's dancing out there. Maybe Carol, your iPod's uh, iPad is broken. Have to buy a new one. <laughs> and give me your old one. <laughs> I don't think I don't think we really want this one necessarily. But well, now the cat is back, and she is right here by the by the iPad, and she is kind of breathing hard. So I don't know. That could be. But that's the only thing on my my. Quit side. trying to sabotage us, Kitty. <laughs> she, she breathes really loud. I think she's got like problems with her. She's attitude. got jewel mutant powers, like jewel. Aww. She can get rid of your gleet, Carol. <laughs> 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 you know they do say that cats uh, purring have uh, healing abilities. They purr because it, like the frequency, I guess, helps them self heal. Or maybe it just soothes them so that they... <laughs> I don't know. That's what people Her- say. Harold, next time you have a kidney stone, you should just carry a cat around with you. That's right. I think that's, that's what right. I'm going to do. <laughs> just put, it, put it right on your on your stomachers. Yes. I don't know. It didn't seem to help me much, but... Mm-hmm. Harold, this is all protected by attorney-client privilege, right? <laughs> oh, these death threats? Unfortunately... <laughs> you, can't, you can't tell anybody, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't apply to uh, imminent Podcasts. death. Podcasts? <laughs> oh, hi, kitty. Oh, I can hear the cat. He just brought his toy bear down. 
We don't know what it means. We don't know what it means, but he brings it down and he's like, yeah, he, he, when, when I first got him, I got this little, little toy bear and it was the exact same size as him. It's a little stuffed bear and he used to sleep with it and stuff. And now he's way bigger than it. And sometimes we'll just be sitting down here and we'll hear him. And he comes down with, he's got, he's got its head in his, or its neck in his mouth. Almost like he just killed it. Yeah. Like he just killed it. And he just drops it at our feet, and we don't know what it means. <laughs> it means you're next. I guess so. <laughs> Maybe I should send him off after Corey. <laughs> Very awesome. I just You're going to wake up, and he's going to be at the foot of your bed, and he's going to put his little pog on his throat and make that little motion like, next. <laughs> I'm going to cut your throat next. <laughs> That's right. Not to interject seriousness or anything, but usually, you know, if they catch like a mouse or something, They'll make that as their, oh, yeah. you know, like so dinner, dinner, it's dinner, yeah. the form of a bear stuffed with like <laughs> a stuffed <up> animal. <laughs> yeah, I think he's. I can't eat this. He's confused, you know. I think he's, he's confused. He's making you a gift. He's an indoor cat, so he's probably never seen a mouse. <laughs> I wish that were case of my indoor cat. <laughs> Come on, oatmeal, let's go.